Uh, let's see. Okay, hello everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for the AIWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section. Um, uh, a special meeting. Uh, today we have a distinct, distinguished speaker, uh, Dr. Bob's. Bradley Bob's for very fun, exciting talks. I know many folks online. Uh, sorry, we have uh, a few technical issues, uh, but I think it's okay now. Um, if we need to change to a uh, local projector, we can do it uh, you know, while this is in session and uh, just set up a projector in the middle if it's needed. Okay, so okay, so just a quick, a few quick words. Uh, you know, we thanks AIWA for the uh, supporting this event and uh, AIWA is a national, sorry, I think this is, uh, I've just pulled it. Uh, so it's a national organization with membership based. And uh, so, um, well, I think, yeah, but uh, the fourth screen will kind of uh, have some issue. I don't want to do it right now. So anyway, um, so this, uh, I'll just go through very quickly. We have different level of membership. Um, and uh, uh, so you are welcome to take a look. And I'm going to jump to the introduction. Just uh, just stay in touch with us. Uh, send me any uh, contact or uh, interest in your membership because we're kind of behind schedule. Uh, so today we're honored to have Dr. Bob's, Bradley Bob's uh, well, as a uh, uh, distinguished speaker for today. He has a long career doing research in laser and electro optics. And uh, in this LA area, and he's been a uh, adjunct professor of physics uh, at Moon Park College and uh, Cal, Cal Luther University. And uh, he's uh, living in Redondo Beach area, but he, he has way much more uh, thing he can tell us uh, today. Uh, so uh, let's welcome Dr. Bobs. Thank you. Pointer. I have a pointer, but pointer. I don't. I just. Well, points not. I just use my. Okay, 
Um, I guess the first question is whether I need to hold this microphone. If I talk loudly, can people, uh, people online, can people online hear me all right without the mic? No? Okay, so I need to hold the mic here? Okay. Not used to working with a mic. Usually I'm... Okay, so uh, I'll be talking about the philosophical mysteries of quantum physics. Or, uh, and you're welcome to ask questions or make comments during the, uh, during the talk, uh, as long as you can keep them brief, uh, then that's okay. Which way? this works is this is there another way is there a clicker or something i've never used this kind of system before i'm sorry we didn't practice or anything yeah i didn't know this was so complicated Oh, there. I, I, I don't know if the light will work very well. Okay. Okay, let's get started. So the first question you might have is why should I care about quantum physics? Well, okay, for me, the question's easy. The answer is easy. I, I make a living at it. But more importantly, why should you care? about quantum physics? Well, there are two reasons, really. First, there's a practical reason, is that it's all around us. It's so much a part of our lives. You know, satellite communications, your phone, your computer, DVD, CD players, video games, digital cameras, solar cells, maglev, trains, MRI, lasers, LEDs, all the, none of these things would be possible without quantum physics. And, they have all become a, a big part of our lives, especially some of these people can't do without anymore. Uh, by the way, I mentioned uh, LEDs. And incidentally, one of my mentors at UCLA invented the LED. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. And so I've dedicated this, this talk to him. So you might wonder, how is this possible? So I'll give one example. Uh, let's look back in 1945, the largest computer in the world at that time, the ENIAC, was built with vacuum tubes, a non-quantum de device. Some of you may be old enough to remember when we used to put these things in our uh, TVs and radios. Uh, they're pretty big. They have a, they use a lot of energy. They don't, one of them doesn't do a whole lot. So, um, and the, the, this computer was 
took an entire city block to uh, power and cool all of these things. Compare that with the entrance of quantum physics into computing made possible the transistor, which can do the same thing as a vacuum tube, but much, much smaller. The, this we show here on the lower right, a, uh, an electron micrograph of a very small transistor. To give you an idea how small this transistor is, each of these white spots you see here is, is one atom. So that's how small they can be made. So in fact, something like your cell phone might have 2 billion or more of these transistors inside it, this, little, this small device, which means that in your pocket, you've got something that's got about 100,000 times more computing power than the largest computer in the world back in 1945. That's what quantum physics has made possible. But there's another reason to care about quantum physics. That's the reason that I'll be addressing today is it had its impact on philosophy. Quantum physics has revolutionized the way we think about the universe, about our place in the universe, and shown that things are radically different from what was thought. Now you're probably saying to yourself, oh, come on, he's exaggerating. You know, he, he likes to think that physics is much more important than it is. So you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, let's look at some what some other great physicists have said about the impact, the philosophical impact of quantum physics. You may have heard of this guy. If quantum physics is correct, it signifies the end of physics as a science. How's that for revolutionary impact? Not only is the universe stranger than we think, it is stranger than, than we can yeah. think. Everything, Everything we, we call, call real is made, made of things that cannot be regarded as real. Quantum, quantum physics is magic. magic. There, there we go. go. How's, How's that, that coming from? from? You may not have heard of uh, Daniel Greenberg, but if, if I quote someone, he's a renowned, respected physicist, physicist, whether you've heard of him or not. And, and finally, finally, quantum, quantum physics, physics makes absolutely no sense. sense. So, so it sounds, it sounds like, like you're talking, talking about some, about some kind, kind of weird, weird speculative science, science, you know, some, something that uh, is, uh, you know, really not supported, uh, you know, something like pyramid power, anti-gravity or something. Uh, now, I'm not saying that none of these things are true. Some of them might be, after all, all science is now proven. At some point, it was speculative before it was proven. Um, but... That's, That's, I, I'm, I'm not, not going to be talking about, about any speculative science in this talk, except for the fact that the mysteries presented in this talk it opens the door to show that any speculative science could be real, no matter how ridiculous or absurd it sounds, because quantum physics has shown us that something can be totally absurd or ridiculous and yet be proven to be absolutely, undoubtedly true. So all these physicists, they're talking about proven science. This is science that every physicist in the world accepts in every university and textbook. 
the theories have been examined over and over. No one can disprove them. The experiments have been done over and over and over. Always, always the same, the same results. results. They, they always, always agree with the theory. theory. So there's, there's no, no doubt that quantum physics is true. And, and final, the final test is it's used to create things that actually work. All those examples I, I gave before. You know, if I put a pyramid on my head and I say, give me energy or something, you might doubt whether that's actually working. But if I tell you that, that your cell phone works, well, maybe not yours, but everybody else's cell phone works, the proof is there that quantum physics works. And, and again, again that's that's the, the only science I'll be talking, talking about in this talk is, is, is proven science. science. So, so other physics lectures can tell you they talk about all kinds of wild, far-fetched, crazy-sounding ideas about speculative science. But I'm going to talk about wild, far-fetched, crazy-sounding ideas that are proven, globally accepted science. And yet, even, Even though, though it's proven, proven there's, there's no, no doubt, doubt that it's true, there's, there's a great, great deal of controversy over it. Uh, it sounds like I can contradict it myself, but, but let me explain. Everyone agrees that the physics and the math of quantum physics is true. But when we think about what it means, how do you interpret it? What's the metaphysics? What's the philosophy or the mythology behind it? There we get a lot of disagreement, and not just people in general, but among physicists. So I'll be presenting various views. All the views that I'll be presenting, no matter how crazy they sound, are taken by renowned, respected physicists uh, who disagree with each other. There's still a raging controversy. Even though many of them sound personally questionable to me, I'll try to stay objective and make it clear when I'm expressing my own opinions until we get to the bonus track. And uh, just for the sake of keeping things uh, simple, I'll uh, take some liberties. Not everything I'll say is exactly true, but our model close enough for lay humans. So we start with the idea that science impacts philosophy. This, this is not a new idea with quantum physics. It goes way back. I'll give you many examples. You're, you're probably aware that in ancient times, people believed that the Earth was the center of the universe. Everything else, including the sun and the stars, all revolved around the Earth. And this is not just a scientific theory. It has philosophical implications. What is it saying? We're so important. Everything revolves around us. We're at the center of everything. Well, science has since, since shown that's not true. And the universe does not revolve around us. And that includes you. And another example, oh, I know some of you are saying, oh, he goofed up. I thought Bradley Bob was perfect, but I've seen he's made a mistake. He's used, he's used the same picture again, aha. I'm, I'm actually, actually it's not a mistake. mistake. I'm, I'm just being efficient. I realized I could use the same picture to make two different points. This, this time, the point I'm making is that the universe is very compact. It's not, not just that we're at the center, center but, but everything, everything that, that we, we see, see the, the sun, sun, the planets, the stars, even, they're right around us. 
We are not just the center, we're a big part of the universe. The universe is not that much bigger than our world. It's all compact around us. But science, of course, has shown us a very different view, especially with some of the uh, some of the uh, most recent uh, views from the uh, the James Webb Telescope. The universe is so big that everything around us is just an instant, almost insignificant speck in it. And so uh, you can see again the philosophical implications is that. You know, the universe is not all about us. It's, there's so much stuff in it, and just a tiny, tiny bit of it is where we are. And that goes not only for space, but also for time. You consider uh, ancient views about, about the history of the universe. And basically, not counting the first six days, the history of the universe was the history of us. When you look at time, again, the time, the time of, the, of the universe is all about humanity, but of course we have since found that's not at all the case. There was so much stuff going on long, long before we came around. Human history is again, just a tiny fraction of the history of the universe. Again, kind of putting us in our place. Also, a view about light. You may not be aware that in ancient times, it was believed that light was something that's created by our eyes. And it's the purpose of light is to enable us to see. The way we see is by sending out light from our eyes and sort of touching things with light. And that may sound like a very weird idea now, but kind of what they had in mind is that if I see something and I want to touch it, I reach out my hand to touch it, same idea with how I see something. My eye reaches out with light to touch it with light. But again, the idea is kind of like everything's about us. Light is all about us. But now we know the light come, does not come from us. It comes from other things, mostly the sun. And it's not about light exists for helping us to see. The light goes all over the place. And some tiny fraction of it just happens to land in our eyes. Our eyes just kind of get in the way, a little bit of light goes to our eye and that's how we see things. So again, light exists independent of us and not just for us. Uh, another idea is, uh, ancient idea is that if something was solid, it was really solid. It's, it's, it is the way it looks, you know, you can, um, it just seems like it's, there's no space in there, but of course, now we know that things look very different from that. What looks solid is actually a bunch of atoms and molecules with lots and lots of space in between. And then, to go further, if you look at one of those atoms, you find that the atom is almost entirely empty space. There's tiny little specks in there and just vast, vast amounts of nothing. So what we see, our world looks solid it's actually, there's almost nothing there. Almost all of it is just emptiness, uh, including ourselves. Oh, look how I took a scientific idea, made it really deep and philosophical, huh? Um, of course, some people are more empty than others. Another idea 
uh, in ancient times, they thought that to affect something, you had to make physical contact, either directly with your hand, indirectly with a stick, or maybe even with air, you could blow on something. And that was, uh, again, making physical contact, pushing the air against it, unless you were outside of science. If you had special supernatural powers, that would be the only way that you could affect something without actually contacting it. But today we know about something called action at a distance. I bring this up because it's gonna be an important point later on talking about action at a distance, affecting something without touching it. And of course, now we know common examples, magnetism, magnets don't have to touch and gravity. The earth can pull the moon around it, even though it's certainly not touching it. So you don't have to touch to have impact. This is something actually quite common in nature. Uh, you don't have to be a, a witch or sorcerer to do that. And our last example is that uh, the universe is absolute and things are the same no matter how, how anyone else is looking at it. But it was shown, and this was pretty much concurrent with quantum physics, that a lot of things are really relative. The theory of relativity says that things, things aren't constant. What's time and space look different to different observers. And so this is philosophically, this is kind of going back in the other direction that things don't exist, you know, independent, absolutely independent of us, but they're relative to us observers. So somehow we become important again in the way that science works. So uh, to make this interactive, um, Here's an exercise, try to think of something you used to believe was true, but science then proved it was false. Maybe something meaningful in your life. And how did you react to that? Any, any uh, volunteers with a, a brief answer, either in person or online? That? Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, see, and then science showed, no, that doesn't happen. And how did that make you feel? Did you, when you found out the truth? Yes, they lied to me. Although more often the reaction is denial. Okay, a lot of these ideas, ancient ideas that I presented, when science would show different ideas, people would not want to accept it. They'd stick to the old ideas. You know, Galileo learned that the hard way. Uh, okay, well, this could be a homework exercise you can think about. So let's get to quantum physics. And the first question, and incidentally, this is a question which surprisingly never comes up, rarely comes up in any discussions or classes on quantum physics. What is a quantum? What does that mean? Well, it's a unit of quantity. So lots of things have units. You measure distance in miles, say. Quantity is measured in how many quantum, or how many quanta it is, or singular would be quantum. And it's the smallest unit of quantity. Okay, so that means that the only way to have a quantity less than one quantum is to have nothing. So it's the smallest possible quantity of something, that's the quantum. For example, electricity. The smallest amount of electricity you can have is one electron. You can't have half an electron of electricity. You can have many electrons, but it's always gonna be a whole number. 
the smallest quantity of an element, say carbon, would be one atom. You can't have less than one atom of carbon unless you have no carbon. Now, some of you might say, wait, but we can split the atom, can't we? Yes, you can, but when you do that, it's not carbon anymore, so that doesn't count. So the smallest amount is still one atom. And the same thing with, with molecules. Say water is H2O, is the smallest amount of water you can have is one molecule. Again, you can split that molecule, but then it's not water anymore. So everything that's quantized means that it has to exist in a whole number of quanta. The smallest amount you could have is one quantum. So I thought about this and I thought, well, let's, let's carry this to ridiculous extremes, this idea, and ask what is a quantum of human population? Because population, again, has to be a whole number. The smallest population you can have is one person and the only thing smaller is nobody. You can't have like two and a half men, that doesn't make sense. Uh, but now we get to the question is, well, where is the cutoff between one quantum of, of humans and zero? So we're asking now the question is, at what point is the division? Where is the line between a human being and not a human being? And now this gets into all kinds of interesting and sometimes very controversial questions. Is that, is that one quantum of a human or is it zero quantity? Remember, it can't be in between. It's one or the other. Uh, supposing we just take a head, is that, is that enough? Maybe not even a head, maybe just a brain, maybe just part of a brain. At, where is that line? So you get into some interesting philosophical issues here. And then I thought, well, let's carry this to an even more ridiculous extreme. What's the quantum of artificial intelligence, AI? How much can you take away and still have AI? And this question came up to me because of a specific scene in a specific movie you're probably all familiar with, where there's a, uh, a spaceship that's being run by an AI named Hal. And uh, without giving away too much, in case you haven't seen the movie, um, at some point, the astronaut here, Dave, decides that he doesn't want Hal to be running the spaceship anymore. Uh, so he can't just turn Hal off because they need a computer to run the spaceship, but he doesn't want an intelligent computer that can come up with its own ideas of how to do things. He wants Hal to become just a dumb computer, to no longer be an AI. So in this, in this scene, which always fascinated me, he starts taking parts out of Hal. And Hal is talking to him as he's doing this. Hal is, is, as Hal is getting dumber and dumber, Hal is talking to Dave, why are you doing this, Dave? Please stop it. And then finally, he pulls out enough. He crosses that line. He no longer has one quantum of AI. He has zero quantum. He just now has a dumb computer with, with no intelligence. Okay, so let's look at the birth of quantum physics and setting the stage for that, uh, the great physicist, A.A. Uh, a. Michelson, or Michelson, um, said that basically everything has been discovered. All the fundamental ideas in physics have been found, all the questions have been answered. Everything is basically known, it's highly unlikely that anything new, really new is going to be discovered and the, the future of physics is down to looking in the sixth place of decimals what does he mean by the sixth place well for example let's say 
you know, they had measured the, the uh, speed of light to be this and it make the measure in the sixth place means instead of a zero there, we can replace that with a number, whoopee. So he's saying physics is gonna become trivial because there's nothing new under the sun. Well, as you'll see, boy, was he wrong. Uh, shortly after he said this, like within a year, um, was came the birth of quantum physics, also called quantum theory, also most commonly called quantum mechanics. Although I don't care for that name because when I tell people I, I study quantum mechanics, they think I know how to fix their car or something, you know. But quantum physics originally was not about any of the quanta that I've talked about so far. It was about light. And it came because of, of a, a problem. Physicists were trying to come up with a theory to explain the colors from a what they called a hot black body. Well, what is a hot black body? It's uh, not what you might think. It's uh, over on the right here, we have an example. This is cast iron coming out of a furnace. Now, when the cast iron's uh, cold, it's black. So that's its actual color in the sense that, you know, the kind of light it reflects. But when you heat it up, you no longer see the light it's reflecting. It's glowing, it's creating its own light. And so now it looks orange. So physicists tried to come up with a theory. How do we explain the color depending on what temperature it is? And they came up with theories and the theories were completely wrong. It was a catastrophe stroke in the, in the words uh, of uh, Jimmy Durante. Their theories were not just slightly wrong, they were completely wrong. And not only was this frustrating, but very humbling because, you know, phys physicists like, uh, like uh, Mickelson have been claiming that, oh, physics has explained everything. And now they're faced with total failure of physics to explain something. What, what the theories all predicted was huge amounts of ultraviolet radiation. And the experiments showed there was almost none. So they dramatically called this failure the ultraviolet catastrophe, because what could be more catastrophic than a physicist being wrong? And then along came Max Planck. I love this picture of Max. He's in front of a blackboard. You can see equations and diagrams. And if you look closely, you see faintly a halo around the head of St. Max, who came to save physics from the ultraviolet catastrophe. And he did it with this idea, there is a least thing that can happen. So he said, not anything can happen. There's like a minimum that can happen. And if minimum doesn't happen, the only thing that's less is for nothing to happen. So you can see how this ties in with the idea of the quantum. And what he was talking about is now known as a quantum leap. So if this is like an energy diagram, uh, we start at one energy and we leap to an energy. And it's a leap because we move continuously from one level to another. We're at one level and we leap to the other one and we're never in between. That's why it's a leap. So we say that energy is quantized. It can't flow freely. It only, it only changes in whole numbers of quanta. So if this doesn't sound strange to you, let's just imagine that speed is quantized and one quantum is 10 miles per hour. 
that would mean that your car could be stationary or it could go 10 or 20 or 30 miles per hour, but it can't go any speed in between. So you get in your car and push on the accelerator and suddenly you're going 10 miles per hour and you were never going anything less than 10 miles per hour, except for zero. So a very strange situation uh, in happening in the quantum world. Of course, the quantum is much smaller than that, but uh, so it's not called, it's called a leap because it's all or nothing. You're on one side or the other side, like taking a leap. You can't, you don't make this leap halfway. Either you made the leap across or you failed to make the leap and didn't, and didn't, didn't do it. It's not called a leap because it's big, but many people, when they use words that they don't know what they mean, they assume, oh, it must mean big, right? I heard the word quantum and that sounds cool and quantum must be big. So when in fact, in, the, in almost all cases, a quantum is something that's very, very tiny. It's so small that it couldn't be smaller without being nothing. Well, those of you who know me at all know that how much, would know how much this kind of thing bugs me, misusing words like this. And it turns out there's a, uh, uh, an engineering journal that had has a, a monthly column called Technically Speaking, where uh, people like myself who are bugged by this can complain about the misuse of technical language. So I wrote uh, uh, an article for this, which was published uh, about the misuse of the term quantum leap. And I told about a particular thing that inspired me to write this article was a TV commercial in which some company is talking about how how very advanced they are how much progress they're making in advancing technology by saying we're taking a quantum leap into the future and i thought uh, they're taking a quantum leap that means what they're saying is the amount of progress that they're making is so so tiny so minuscule so so almost imperceptible that the only way they could make less progress would be to make no progress at all. So when have you taken a quantum leap? We're thinking now of things outside of science, maybe uh, figurative. When did you take a quantum leap where it was, that was the minimum leap that you could take? You couldn't go part with it. Any, any ideas uh, here or online? Here, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example for this. Anybody uh, watching this? Anybody ever pregnant? No, no one? Okay, well, if someone was pregnant, there's a quantum leap because you can't be half pregnant. You're either one quantum of pregnancy or you're not pregnant. There's no in between. You could have, you could be doubly pregnant, you know, with twins or more, but it's, it's a quantum leap. So Planck's theory worked, hooray, solved the ultraviolet catastrophe. But why did it work? What does that mean, a quantum leap? Why does this thing exist? What's going on here? Everybody agreed it was a success, but what, why was it a success? And Planck himself had no idea. He was surprised it was a success. He said later, what I did can be described as an act of desperation. It was like, Everybody else failed. Let's take this crazy idea and see what happens. And behold, it worked. Uh, incidentally, 
some people never acknowledged that there was a catastrophe in the first place. One James Jeans, who came up with one of the uh, main theories that it completely failed, says, "Oh, it's fine. Theories don't need to match all the experimental results. What what if it says there's going to be huge amounts of ultraviolet? Oh, so what?" And uh, Planck's reply was, uh, "James Jeans is an idiot." By the way, let's we'll briefly introduce Ludwig Boltzmann, a great physicist and chemist, so that we can have a variation on the. You may have heard the the old riddle, "Who's buried in Grant's tomb?" Okay, and it's a joke, of course, because we all know that Grant is buried in Grant's tomb. But whose equation is on Boltzmann's tomb? We show her a picture of Boltzmann's tomb, and you can see right on there is an equation called Boltzmann's equation. And the, the K in there is called Boltzmann's constant. Whose equation and whose constant really is that on Boltzmann's tomb? Turns out it's Max Planck came up with both of those. And somehow uh, Boltzmann got the credit, but this, this thing is fairly common in physics to have things misnamed. But don't feel too bad for Max Planck because eventually he got his, he got his turn where someone else's um, with, with someone else's constant was named Planck's constant. So he got, he got his own constant in the end. So quantum physics had a, a big impact. Uh, you could see this actually in Max Planck himself. This shows a picture of him before he invented basically quantum physics. And then we look at a picture of him afterwards. You can see this is a radical change. And then a few years later, we have basically the, the co-inventor of, of uh, quantum physics, a guy who was, had a PhD in physics, but he was completely unknown in the physics world. He could not get a job as a professor working, doing research in a university or research institute. The only job he could get at the, that time was to work in the uh, office of patents in Switzerland. But he had access to the patent library. And so in his spare time, he would study what's going on in the world of physics. And he came up with some, I uh, some ideas and published them. And in one year, he at this total unknown in physics, came up with three of the most important papers in the entire history of physics. Theory of Brownian motion, I'll go into uh, shortly. Relativity, I'm sure you've heard of. I'll mention that uh, a little later on. And the theory of the photoelectric effect. And um, I'll let you think about guessing which one of these three would get him the Nobel Prize. We'll get to that soon. So Brownian motion, this is a process, a study done with perfectly pure water. Water was distilled, so they were sure there was nothing in it but water, and they would put it under conditions where there were no vibrations, no wind, nothing to make it move at all. But they float some little uh, specks, pollen grains in it, and the pollen grains would move around by themselves. And they'd wonder why this happened. Uh, some biologists said, oh, look, this proves spontaneous generation of life pure water and life just appeared into it. Microorganisms are pushing this, this pollen grain around. Well, that's not the answer, but Einstein found the answer. He got a hold of the data 
from the Brownian motion. And in this uh, animation here, the yellow is this speck that can be seen under a microscope, the pollen grain. The little gray things cannot be seen under a microscope, could not be seen by any method available at the time. But Einstein was just imagining that these, these little water molecules are just bouncing around randomly. And that's what's causing the pollen grain to move. And by analyzing the statistics of this, he was able to prove that water is made up of molecules. And this was a very important result because the existence of molecules or atoms had never been proven at this point. Now, most scientists believed in it kind of on faith, but a lot of scientists being, you know, skeptical as good scientists are, would not accept the existence of atoms or molecules without proof. And so until Einstein published this paper, you could still go to a chemistry class and take textbooks where there would be no mention of atoms or molecules in the entire class in 1904, if you can imagine, because the professor and the author of the textbook did not believe in them. But finally that ended due to Einstein. So another paper that he published was on the photoelectric effect. Photo means light. So basically it's light creating electricity. So, and this eventually led to our modern solar cells and digital cameras. Think about it, light is turning into a, an electrical signal. But the way it was done back then is with electrodes in a vacuum chamber. Now we don't need the vacuum chamber anymore, uh, thanks to quantum physics. But in a, uh, a vacuum chamber, they would shine light of different types onto one electrode and that would cause electrons, electrons were known at that time, electrons would come off and create a current. And so they did experiments where they would vary the intensity of the light and they'd vary the color of the light and they'd measure the current. And wouldn't you know, the theories for that completely failed. Once again, another catastrophe where physics which was supposed to be so advanced and complete just had no explanation for what they were seeing in this fairly simple experiment well einstein studied these results and he thought about planck's idea about the quantum leap and he came up with the idea that light energy is quantized and so light is made of particles each particle is one quantum. Now the particles, usually we think of particles with mass, these are particles that have no mass. So even light can be a, a particle, even though it's not mass. Later they were named photons. I'll be talking a lot about photons. And his theory is that one photon, one quantum of light, knocks out one quantum of electricity from the metal. And this simple theory worked perfectly, whereas everyone else had completely failed. So in fact, this is the reason he got the Nobel Prize. It took 16 years for people to realize uh, the importance, but basically this launched quantum physics. So Max Planck, when he heard about Einstein's theory, must have thought, oh, great, he's, he's finally explained, he's proven uh, Planck's theory about quantum leaps and all. But strangely enough, Planck 
totally disagreed with Einstein's theory, ironically. However, oh, and this was a problem for Einstein because Planck was the advisor on theoretical physics for publishing in, in the, uh, the premier journal at the time. So Planck needed to get Planck's, uh, Einstein needed to get Planck's approval to publish his work. And here Planck totally disagreed with it. But what saved him was, what saved Einstein was his theory of relativity. Because it turned out Planck fully agreed with Einstein's theory of relativity. Kind of strange. I mean, you know, stretching space and time. Oh, yeah, he was fine with that. But light particles, oh, he couldn't believe that, even though he had himself had come up with the idea of uh, quantized energy. But anyway, because of relativity, Planck had faith in Einstein. And so he approved all of his papers, even the ones that he totally disagreed with. And that's why, you know, that's why we have quantum physics today. So quantum physics has, has explained all kinds of things which were totally unexplainable before its invention. I already mentioned the hot black body radiation, the photoelectric effect, a lot of other things came afterwards. It explained why are atoms stable? Why don't atoms just collapse? You know, what is keeping them existing? Um, why do we get spectral lines? You, you may know about uh, spectral lines seen from the sun or stars say, why are, why are things colors? What determines what colors things are? This could not be explained until quantum physics. And what, are the, what holds things together? What are the chemical bonds? Uh, and, and how does it determine how strong things are? All these things could not be explained before quantum physics. And why do things change from solid to liquid to gas? Uh, how does magnetism work? And even, the extraordinary reliability of genetic inheritance. Um, I, I, had, I had to go to my son. My son has a PhD in genomics. He had to explain it, this to me, and I still didn't understand it, but you'll have to take uh, my word for it that he said this is, this is okay. So Einstein solved the problem. Light is made of particles. There's no problem anymore, right? Well, no, people had a lot of problems with saying light's made of particles because everybody knew that light is made of waves, that light is a wave, and waves are totally different from particles. Well, what's a wave? Well, it's just what you might think. An example is a wave in the ocean. So it's something that's uh, it's undulating up and down while it's going forward. So you've, you've all seen ocean waves, and sound waves are similar. The, you know, the, uh, the um, air is moving like back and forth as the whole thing's going forward. Or even like in a stadium, people are lifting cards up and down and they make a pattern that goes forwards. So that's a wave. And it was very well known at the time that light is also a wave. Well, how can that be? Light doesn't have any matter in it. There's other examples, there's matter moving. So what is it that's moving? What is it undulating? Well, it turns out it's electricity and magnetism and not electricity made out of electrons, actual particles, but just the electric field of electricity and the magnetic field, they, undulate turns out perpendicular to each other and it moves forward and it had been proven was very well established that light was a wave so now they're faced with this problem oh, wait light's a particle light's a wave what's going on here so before i talk more about waves let's mention a, a couple of uh, properties of waves one is diffraction and here you can see it 
there's um, these uh, rocks on the beach, ocean waves are coming in. And when the waves go, go through this, this gap, this slit or opening in between the rocks, it spreads out and you can see these, these semicircular patterns coming through. This happens with all kinds of waves, including light. It's kind of like if you drop a pebble in, in the water and it makes these circles going out, just look at that half of that on one side of the wall. So that's wave diffraction. And then another thing we need to know about waves is wave interference. And first I'll show constructive interference. Let's two waves and they line up. So the peaks of the waves are the same place. The valleys of the waves are the same place. When we add these two waves together, they have constructive interference. They make a wave that's twice as big, but it doesn't have to be constructive. It could be out of phase or out of sync. So it's a peak here of one wave lines up with the valley on the other wave. And when you add them together, they cancel out and you end up with nothing. So whether, so whether the interference is constructive or destructive depends on the phase of these waves. So another exercise, what's another kind of interference that could be either constructive or destructive? Any, any ideas? You, you can go, you know, totally outside the world of physics for this. You think of uh, something that interferes and it could be constructive or destructive. And um, there's something that determines which it is. Um, well, I'll leave this as a homework exercise because we got a lot of material to get through. So how do we know, how did they know at the time that light is a wave? How could they be so sure of this? Well, the most convincing proof, there were many proofs, the most, the most demonstrative one was the double slit experiment, first done by Thomas Young. So here we show the double slit experiment done with water waves. What we're seeing here is a photograph from above. There's a transparent tray of water. There's a wave machine over to the left, creating these straight waves. Then there's some wall, there's a wall here with two slits in it where the waves can go through. And you get one wave going through here, it diffracts and makes this semicircular pattern. You have the wave also goes through this slit and makes another semicircular pattern over here. And these two patterns now interfere with each other. And sometimes the interference is constructive and it ends up giving a very strong wave. And other places it's destructive. And you can see here places where you get a very weak wave, where it cancels out. And you can write equations for this. And this is, you know, really proof that we're dealing with waves, defines the wave equations. Well, it turns out you can do basically the exact same thing with light, light waves. You can, the slits are much smaller here, but we can have light coming from one side. It creates these two patterns, creates, um, in it, you know, constructive, alternating constructive and destructive interference. We observe a pattern and that pattern obeys the exact same equations as for water or any other kind of wave. So there's no doubt that water is a wave. So we have, oh, um, okay. And let's see, how do I show? Ah, there we go. Okay, so here's, 
uh, an animation I found on YouTube where we have uh, a wave coming in and it goes, most of it's blocked, but some of it gets through each of the two slits. The two slits show interference and they give you a pattern on the far wall there, pattern alternating strong and weak lines. So that's an indication of a wave. By the way, Thomas Young, who came up with this, was a rather amazing guy. Uh, by the time he was uh, age six, he had learned Latin and read the entire Bible twice. Uh, by the time he was a teenager, he was fluent in 13 languages, some of which I never heard of before. He was the first one to come up with the RGB theory of, of the eye. You all know how the, you have cones in, in three different colors, and this is how we how we see um, how we see color, and of course it's used in all kinds of digital images, the RGB standard. He was also the first one to translate Egyptian hieroglyphics. And he came up with this critical experiment proving that light is a wave. So what a guy, huh? Okay, so let's take to to see the, the dichotomy here, let's take the uh, example uh, of, of the double slit experiment and imagine to do this at a quantum level so now normally when we see light it's zillions of photons okay a photon is is a very tiny amount of light we can't even see one of them okay if you sit in the complete total darkness for half an hour your eyes get completely dark adjusted you still can't see one photon but if you happen to get say about 10 photons just randomly happen to come at about the same time, you can see a little flash of light. I've seen this myself doing some experiments where I had to sit in total darkness. And it's interesting to get these little flashes and, and actually seeing maybe not single photons, but clumps of several photons. So let's imagine we have a light source and we keep dimming it down and down and down, turn the power way down, put filters in front of it, whatever it takes until there's so little light coming through it but basically we're getting one photon at a time. So we can do an experiment where one photon goes over to our, we're gonna use a, say a very sensitive digital camera over here. One photon comes, then another photon comes, then another one. So we're gonna use it, or so we can be sure that we're not seeing any kind of interaction among photons. We're seeing one quantum at a time. And suppose this camera is much more sensitive than the human eye can see one. So what we'll see is uh, at some time, there's one pixel lights up. We saw one, one, uh, one photon, and we're just gonna leave the shutter open in all these experiments. So uh, that one stays there. And then later, oh, another pops up and another and another, and they just keep coming like this. And so we see these photons lighting up one pixel at a time. And the timing is random. They don't come at regular intervals. They just come one here or there. We can't see any pattern, it seems to be totally random. And also the location, as you can see, they just show up at random places. So that's a, a quantum uh, detection of light. Okay, so now let's take this double slit experiment. And first, let's try to answer the question of whether one quantum, one photon of light, does it go through one slit or does it go through both slits? Of course, it can always go through zero slits and just be blocked, but we're not gonna care about those. And so we're gonna put two detectors right directly behind each slit. 
so we can know for sure that the photon went through there. And what we find is that we never see a photon at both detectors. Every single photon is detected at either detector A, it goes through slit A, or it goes through slit B and is detected by B. And so we infer every photon must have gone through one slit or the other, never through both. So whereas a wave, remember a wave, in order to get the wave effect, the wave has to go through both slits because it has to have this diffraction and the interference between the two. If the wave doesn't go through both slits, there's no wave pattern. But we know there it does go through both slits because we do see that pattern. Okay, so now let's do experiment number two. We're going to take the camera and we're going to back it up. We're going to put it because we need some room here for the diffraction and the interference to occur. So we leave some space here and put the camera. And now we're going to look and see, count the photons one at a time. Up oh, there's one, some random times, random pl place later. There's another one. There's another one. And they're just going to keep coming. We're just going to leave the shutter open. So they just keep accumulating. We get more and more and more and just you know go for however many hours or days it takes until we get so many that it builds up like this. Okay, gradually we get more and more of these specs and eventually we see the pattern and it's the wave interference pattern that comes from a wave. So from experiment number one, we know that each one of the photons making up that pattern went through only one of the slits and yet somehow we ended up with a pattern that can only be formed by a wave going through both of the slits. And so this is a great mystery of quantum physics. And let's see, start this one. So now we show there's, there's something coming to the two waves, the quantum view of it, and something goes through each of the slits maybe, but it ends up just at one spot, there's one spot there. We're not sure what happened before that. And then we repeat this and we get another spot. We get one photon at a time. So we keep getting, every time a photon goes through, we get one spot appearing. And we just repeat this over and over again and leave it. And eventually it builds up to give this wave pattern when we get enough, a large number of photons going through, even though it was only one photon at a time. So very confusing, lights a wave, lights a particle. I mean, a wave is spread out. It has to go through both slits to give us this pattern. And yet when we detect a photon, it goes through only one slit or the other. So this is called duality, wave-particle duality or wave-particle complementarity. Sometimes light acts like a wave and sometimes it acts like a particle, which means that what it, what it really is is, well, we don't know. We don't even know what to call it. Some people call it a wavicle. Um, we can call things whatever we, we want, but what are they really is maybe something that we don't know how to describe. So this concept of duality or complementarity uh, also comes up in art. You've probably seen some of these images. You know, if you look at it one way, this is, uh, this is the beak of a bird. If you look at it another way, these are the ears of a rabbit and all kinds of other possibilities where we have the concept of duality, just like in, in uh, quantum physics. 
uh, here's an example of some uh, duality art where we take this picture and you probably know who that is, but let's take that same picture and just move it further away, the exact same picture. And I'm gonna simulate moving it away just by making it smaller, not changing it in any other way. And when you do that, it looks like a totally different person. It's very, very clever how they did this. And I, I swear to you, these are the exact same image. They're only changed in size. So this duality comes down to the question of who is your best friend? Is it quantum physics or are diamonds a girl's best friend? So the idea of duality has been applied to other things like a, a political philosophy. Uh, Max Born, we'll hear more about him later, uh, came up, applied this idea that the two mutually exclusive things like waves and particles could be united in a single thing. And he applied it to political philosophy. Uh, he describes here the, the complementarity of capitalism and communism. Uh, frankly, it sounds like a lot of BS to me, but still he's showing the idea that um, the philosophical concepts of quantum physics could apply to all kinds of subjects. And uh, here, we'll, we'll show one more thing and then we'll take a, uh, an intermission before we continue because it's going on a long time. Now, you might wonder, you might not have heard of Max Born, but he is famous. I assure you he's famous. He is so famous. Do you know how famous he is? He's so famous. Anybody? How famous is he? People don't watch Johnny Carson, I guess. Um, he is so famous that he got his own Google Doodle, okay? How famous do you have to be to get your own Google Doodle? And the, the Google Doodle shows Max uh, when he was alive, busy at work in his, in his office. He did mostly theoretical physics, but there's something missing from this picture because if you had gone into Max Born's office, you surely would have noticed as everyone did that he's got a huge portrait of, um, wait, is that Olivia Newton-John getting physical with physics? Well, he must be a very, a very big fan. And if you asked him, he would assure you, oh yes, he is definitely a big fan because he's very proud of his granddaughter. Uh, and uh, with that, uh, why don't we take a, a 10 minute intermission and we'll come back for the completion of part one. Okay, thank you.
Well, there's all kinds of electronics. Yeah, yeah any kind of uh, electronics. But they took, they took these days. There's a lot. They took the, the physics and the math. They took the, they took the physics and the math, and they used that to help to.
will say 50%. It reflects uh, half of the light and transmits half of the light. So it's midway between a mirror and a window. So, and in diagrams, it, it would be shown just as, as BS, but believe me, this is not just BS. So for the, um, in the wave picture, we just say that 50% of the light energy might goes either way. But in the quantum picture, we know that a photon cannot be split and go both ways. So what it's saying, at least in my opinion, and many other physicists, is that 50% of the photons go through it and 50% are reflected by it on average. So that's at least one way to interpret it. So John Archibald Wheeler, Wheeler came, on, came up with an, a variation on the two-slit experiment. We have again our light source, which is putting out single photons. We'll say one photon at a time again. And the photon can take either of two paths, just like the double slits. <coughs> Excuse me. But instead of slits, we're going to have two mirrors. So it could reflect off one mirror, mirror A or mirror B. And then the two beams reflect and then they cross here at one point. And we put two detectors here to see uh, which path it took. Well, we can optionally put a beam splitter right at this intersection. So now the beam splitter means that the light going this, whoops, the light going this way might go through or it might reflect and go that way. And the same for the light coming the other way. So it becomes somewhat ambiguous when we put the beam splitter in. And we can leave it up to us. It can, this can be our choice whether or not we're gonna put the beam splitter in. So if we put the beam splitter in, we get a wave pattern because now we get interference <coughs> between two parts of the wave because of that beam splitter showing that the light acts like a wave. But if we take the beam splitter out, then there's no interference there. And so the light acts like single photons. It either reflects off one mirror or the other mirror. So now it's our, our choice. We can control by putting in or taking out this beam splitter, whether light is gonna act like a wave or a particle. Well, no, it, it's, um, it's combining the two beams, combining or splitting the two beams. The double slit is, is represented here, is replaced here by the two mirrors. So the two mirrors show the two paths that it could take. So that's kind of the part of the double slit. The beam splitter is controlling whether interference allowed. So now to get really interesting, we're going to do what's called the delayed choice experiment. So remember, we get to decide whether we're gonna put the beam splitter in and see waves or take the beam splitter out and see photons. And what we're going to do is we're going to wait a long enough time until so the, the light can reflect off one or both of these mirrors. And after it's done that, now we're going to exercise our free will and decide whether the wave is going to act like a wave, whether the light is going to act like a wave that reflected off both mirrors, or whether it's going to act like a particle that were reflected off one. But this is weird because reflecting off the mirror, it already happened. We're gonna make this choice 
after it's already occurred. So this gets really confusing because now we're deciding whether light was acting like a wave or a particle in the past after it's already happened. So there's something really bizarre about this, this delayed choice. Well, if we do this experiment on a table, we're delaying our choice by nanoseconds. So it's, it's barely measurable. A nanosecond is a, what is that? A billionth of a second, okay? So it's hard to tell what happened. So let's, let's do this on a larger scale. Let's look at light from the sun. Okay, well now, we can change the light by minutes. Okay, so this is now starting to get interesting that we can change what happened minutes ago. Okay, that's a strange enough idea, but let's carry this further. Let's look at light from, uh, from another star. And now we can go back in years changing the past. Or how about a further star away? We can go back in time centuries, or let's look at light from another galaxy, go back millions of years, or let's look at light from distant quasars, the furthest things away that we can see. And we can actually change the past, according to this, what happened billions of years ago. This is getting really bizarre. Now, these experiments have been done. Even the one at the bottom, changing, doing the delayed choice experiment has been done with light from distant quasars, light which which got reflected billions of years ago. How is this possible even to do that? Well, it's done by using something called uh, Einstein's telescopes because it's based on a gravity lens. This comes from Einstein's theory of general relativity, which says that, uh, that math can curve space, which curves the way the path that light takes. So um, this diagram is now reversed. Now we have the, the source on the right side and the detector is here on earth on the left side. So imagine there's some quasar, which is billions of light years from earth. So the light we're seeing from it was emitted billions of years ago, back you know, when, when the universe was young. And we can see these photons and we'll suppose, consider, a, a couple of possible paths for a photon to take. One up here that goes by, conveniently we happen to have a massive galaxy, not just an ordinary galaxy, a particularly massive one here, which can curve space-time and curve the path of the photon so that it heads towards Earth where we can see it. And suppose there's another massive galaxy over here, which can curve a photon going this way, again, curve it so we could see it. And now we can get these two photons to cross here, to intersect. And now we could choose to put a beam splitter in there and see wave interference or take the beam splitter out and not see the interference and see individual photons. So we can do this experiment where we are changing what light did, whether it acted as a wave or a particle billions of years ago. Well, obviously, this is a preposterous idea that we can change the past from billions of years ago. So instead, so nobody believes that. Okay, instead we go with a less absurd explanation is that this whole idea that light is going back and forth 
between being a wave and being a particle and that whether it's a wave or a particle at a given time you know depends on, on the measurement we just have to throw that idea out and somehow somehow wave duality accounts for all this so again we come back to the idea that light can't be either a wave or a particle it's something that we just is just inexplicable we can call it whatever we want but what it really is we don't have a good description at least not one that's uh universally accepted by the way john archibald wheeler who came up with this idea of the delayed choice experiment he was the first with along with niels bohr to split an atom nuclear fission first ones to do that he was also a mentor to Richard Feynman, you might have heard of. And he came up with the name black hole, which I'm sure you've all heard of. He didn't discover black holes, but he, he named them. So exercise, I showed you here an example of where there's no reasonable explanation for something. So of the two explanations, we take the one that is less absurd than the other. So any other ideas of an example of that kind of uh, reasoning? Oh, what? Occam's razor. Okay, you, you can take take the, the simpler idea. Okay, again along the same lines of take the less absurd idea, the simpler one. So uh, again, this, this can be homework assignment. Okay, you'll all have to come back with your turning your homework, and it will be graded. Uh, just kidding. Okay, so let's get to reasons for being uncertain, in particular, being uncertain about an experiment. So our equipment that we use in a scientific experiment, it's got, it's, it has its limits, it's not perfect. So it's got limits, limited precision. A technology, maybe technology hasn't advanced enough yet. In the future, we may have new kinds of technology give us much more precision. Maybe we're not smart enough yet. We haven't come up with clever enough ideas yet. Um, we, haven't, we haven't come up with the best idea for ways to do things. We haven't encountered this to optimal conditions. You have to wait for just the right conditions. So these are all reasons why the uncertainty is introduced into any kind of scientific measurement. But these are all reasons which we could overcome sometime in the future. Okay, we could get over these reasons, but um, we can get more and more uncertain until we hit the quantum limit. Quantum limit was formulated by Werner Heisenberg. He also invented the matrix description of quantum physics, but he's best known for coming up with the quantum uncertainty principle. And that says that there's a fundamental limit to how precisely anything that can be, be measured. So it's not any of the limits that I mentioned, but there's a limit like in nature itself, no matter how smart we get, no matter how perfect our equipment is, how perfect conditions are, there's always going to be a fundamental uncertainty in nature. There's a limit to what we can know. And it's almost as if precise answers don't exist. There's some fundamental uncertainty in the universe itself somehow. And what kind of things are we uncertain about? Well, examples that we've already talked about is 
when we see a, uh, a, a photon, what time does it come at? That's random, it's unpredictable. Always uncertain about that. Where does it land? Does it, which split does it go through? Now, usually what we do is we'll see a large number of quanta. Almost all light experiments don't use, look at a single photon. We look at zillions of photons. And so this uncertainty all kinds of washes out. But if we look at one quantum, there's a very strong uncertainty. And this has profound consequences, it turns out. Well, Einstein was not happy about this conclusion, saying that, that things are random. Remember, Einstein was, you know, Einstein and Planck, they really invented quantum physics. And now other physicists like, like uh, Heisenberg were extending that and coming up with ideas that now things are random. And Einstein just made his famous quote. He just could not believe things are random. God does not throw dice. It's not really a religious statement. It's a statement about the universe. The universe can't be random. There has to be a reason for things happening. So he uh, protested this idea. And he would come to protest quantum physics uh, many more times, as, as we'll see. Well, there was a great comeback to uh, Einstein for saying this from Niels Bohr. Albert, stop telling God what to do. In other words, you don't have to like it. Except just our job as physicists is to find out what's happening. What is nature doing? Not to have uh, predispositions about what it, what it should be doing. But Einstein was never convinced. Uh, Niels Bohr, I mentioned, by the way, he invented the model of an atom of, of uh, electron going about a nucleus, you know, kind of like planets. Now this Heisenberg uncertainty principle, despite the fact that it's got uncertainty in the name and it's all about uncertainty, it's not at all a vague, uncertain, you know, notion. It gives equations, very exact equations for calculating exactly this quantum uncertainty is, how much it is. Again, it only applies to the fundamental uncertainty in the universe. So we can always be more uncertain because of other factors. But it applies forever. So it's saying that no matter how smart we become, no matter how far our technology advances, as far as we know, according to the current theories, which always work, we never overcome this fundamental uncertainty. And every bit of evidence shows that Heisenberg, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is absolutely true and exact. Physicists are quite certain as to exactly how certain they are. So, what are the philosophical implications of this? Well, before quantum physics, the laws of physics were deterministic, or we call them mechanistic, mechanistic, given that hypothetically, if you knew exactly what was the state of the universe, if you knew exactly where every atom and every photon was and what direction it was going, you could just apply the equations of physics and predict exactly what's going to happen. So it's a deterministic view, but in this deterministic view, how can there be free will? Free will is saying that we can't determine what's going to happen in the future, that someone can decide to do something different from what we predicted. So 
this quantum uncertainty, it makes the laws of physics probabilistic. It tells us what might happen or what's likely to happen, it gives us statistical random results, non-mechanistic. So it's been supposed that quantum mechanics is, is really uh, the wrong name for it. And the leeway that it allows for changes, uh, maybe those are produced by, by uh, free will. Maybe this holds the key for the existence of, of our free will. Okay, enter Erwin Schrodinger, who uh, was uh, an Austrian physicist. He escaped from the Nazis, went to Ireland, and he tried to describe quantum functions in an alternate way, the way that uh, Heisenberg with matrices worked perfectly well, but he came up with independently different idea. So quantum particles, these, these uh, quanta, photons, whatever, he described how they change by a wave equation. He came up with the Schrodinger wave equation, and it predicts what a quantum particle will do, but it moves like a wave. So it addresses the wave particle duality. And by the way, when he escaped from Austria, from the Nazis, yes, of course, he was singing the hills are alive. But Later, Max Born explained the meaning of the Schrodinger wave equation in what's called the Born rule. The equation doesn't tell what happens, but how likely each possible outcome is. So for example, psi, which is almost always used for a wave equation, the wave equation for a photon in our double slit experiment could be 50% of the wave equation for a photon that goes through slit A and 50% for a photon that goes through slit B. And that's saying that this photon has a 50% chance of going through slit A or slit B. So we can't predict the future because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. We can't predict exactly what's happening. We're always uncertain, but we can predict the statistical trends in an ensemble in, in many, in many uh, statistical cases. Uh, by the way, the Born rule is a rule. It's not an identity. It's not the Born identity. Well, not everyone was happy about this. Um, Wolfgang Pauli said, physics is very muddled. Much too hard for me. And I wish I were a movie comedian, someone who had heard, never heard anything about physics. Of course, Pauli went on to accomplish great things as a physicist but he was almost driven out by, by the absurdity of, of quantum physics. Heisenberg said, the more I think about Schrodinger's theory, the more repulsive I find it, getting very emotional here. Schrodinger himself, it was probably not quite right. In other words, it's crap. So there were a lot of emotions were flying over this, the, the controversy about quantum physics and what it means, even though everyone agreed that it was correct and true, and every prediction was exactly correct. And Schrodinger himself said, I do not like quantum physics, and I'm sorry I ever had anything to do with it. Now, Urban Schrodinger was a very interesting character uh, personally. I'll go a little bit into his personal life. We show him here a rare photograph um, with, on the right is his wife, Anne Marie, and uh, up above, standing behind them 
is Hilda, who is the wife of Irwin's assistant, Arthur March. And uh, Hilda also had the distinction of being the, uh, the mother of Irwin's son. So, um, but before you go feeling too sorry for Arthur March, you have to take, um, you know, ha having his, his, his wife, uh, um, having relations with, uh, with his boss, Irwin, have to take into account, first of all, Arthur March really got a nice position working as Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's assistant in Ireland. Uh, Erwin Schrodinger became quite renowned. And at the Institute, they, they said, oh, we'll hire you an assistant to help you out. And he said, that assistant must be Arthur March. No one else will do for this position uh, and, and make sure he brings his wife along. So he did get a nice position about that. And one other reason not to feel too sorry for Arthur March is because it turns out Arthur also had another woman on the side besides his wife, Hilda. And as you probably guessed by now, that woman was none other than Anne-Marie Schrodinger. What a, what a tangled web we weave here. Well, this rare photo uh, was very difficult to find. I finally found it in a uh, Japanese uh, publication. And here's the title of the publication. Can, can anybody translate that? Uh, I wonder, well, um, that had a very interesting title. I ran this title through Google Translate and it said, who said that science men wouldn't slap their sisters? Compared to Schrodinger, you are weak. Um, rather, I'm not sure exactly what that tells us about Schrodinger, but um, uh, a friend of mine, Weingarten, who came to my lecture, he made a very interesting observation uh, from this, this story about Schrodinger. Uh, he said, let's look at the Schrodinger wave function for the double slit experiment. And remember what it says is that the photon has a 50% chance of going through slit A and a 50% chance of going through slit B. And let's now consider the question, does Erwin Schroeder himself has his own wave function? And interestingly enough, the wave function for Erwin Schrodinger turns out to be almost exactly the same as the wave function of the photon, because he also had a 50% chance of going through, oh, 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 never mind. Okay, so enter Louis-Victor Pierre-Raymond de Broglie. The seventh Duke de Broglie, an interesting character. Um, he was a uh, PhD student in Paris. And th the premise of his dissertation was that this, this um, wave particle duality doesn't just apply to light, it also applies to matter. Matter also exhibits wave particle duality and this randomness, this probabilistic, all these quantum effects of matter and all the professors on his dissertation committee you know they had to decide whether this was acceptable and whether he should graduate with his with his phd and they were looking at it and saying you know this is this is so crazy maybe it's true what should we do and one of them came up with a great idea let's ask einstein so they took his dissertation and they mailed a copy off to Einstein to ask him what he thought of it. So Einstein wrote back, he said, give him his degree. 
And um, his actual quote was a little, little more poetic. He has lifted a corner of the great veil. I love that, that word. But um, so they gave him his degree and they were right to do so because it turns out a few years later, the double slit experiment was performed with electrons, with actual matter. And sure enough, they got wave patterns. Uh, amazing. So, uh, so De Burley got a Nobel Prize for this, for predicting that electrons are waves. And one of the people who did the experiment proving that electrons are waves, Sir George Thompson, he also got a Nobel Prize. Now, his father was the great Sir J.J. Thompson. He was very proud to see his son get a Nobel Prize, just like he had gotten a Nobel Prize 31 years before. And what's interesting is, what did he get his prize for? He got it for proving that his electron, that electrons are particles. J.J. Thompson discovered the electron, got a Nobel Prize for proving their particles. And 31 years later, his son gets a Nobel Prize for proving that electrons are waves. So there you have it. Wave-particle duality is right in the family. And so quantum physics doesn't just apply to light or things without matter. It also applies to matter, proving once again, quantum physics matters. So now we'll see the, um, the double slit experiment uh, done with matter. First, we're going to start with uh, showing with a paintball gun, showing classical physics. And with a paintball gun, we just see that, you know, some of the paintballs go through one slit or the other, and they make a pattern that shows two slits. No surprise there. But now let's go into the quantum world and replace the paintball gun with an electron gun and shoot electrons at it. And lo and behold, the electron acts like a wave, just like photons act like a wave. And even though we get, we see individual electrons, after we shoot a huge number of them, they build up and they form the wave interference pattern. Uh, and here now we see it, uh, a bird's eye view of this. And it turns out we get a probability distribution, which is showing the probability of an electron landing at a given point and showing that yes, electrons are waves and by basically implies that all matter is waves. We are waves even. So we've been talking about photons and electrons. Just, let's just do a quick comparison. Photons were previously, previously thought to be waves and quantum physics showed they were particles. Electrons were previously thought to be particles and quantum physics showed them to be waves. Electrons are energy with no mass. Uh, electrons have mass have, or, or, have, or matter that do have mass. How much, um, how much mass do they have? Well, remember that's given by E equals mc squared to do that conversion. Photons always go at the same speed in a vacuum. And whereas electrons can go at any speed less than that. And both of them follow the same quantum laws. So pick a team you want to root for. So since then, uh, bigger particles, much bigger than electrons, have been shown also to show wave behavior. Uh, first, neutrons. Neutrons a lot bigger than electron. And then buckyballs. Uh, these are uh, carbon atoms arranged in the shape 
of a, um, a soccer ball or a geodesic dome. So they're named after Buckminster Fuller. Uh, and more recently, it's been done with molecules with a couple thousand atoms in there, some, some pretty big things. So apparently everything obeys quantum laws, at least in principle. I mean, with larger things, you, you can't see the effects. Well, quantum uncertainty has some interesting implications. Basically, it means that all the laws of physics are uncertain, that the laws of physics can be broken in particular, if they're broken only for a very short time, so that the time is, wi is within the time uncertainty. It's kind of like the physics police, well, they, will, they will turn their back on violations of physics law, but only if, if it happens quickly enough. So even the fundamental laws of the universe have this quantum uncertainty built into them. So when did you get away with breaking the rules but only because you did it quickly enough that it left their uncertainty. It left uncertainty whether it actually happened. It was so fast. Any, any examples that you wanna share? This could be a homework assignment again you can think about. So uh, Richard Feynman came up with diagrams that show some of these impossible things happening, things that break the laws of physics, but only very quickly before the phys physics police can intervene. So in this diagram, the, uh, the squiggle in the middle is a virtual photon. So it can't actually exist, but it comes and it goes, it's gone before you know it within the uncertain time. And you can get even more interesting uh, Feynman diagrams. In this example, okay, time is going upwards in this diagram. But if you look at this diagram, some of the lines here, the arrows are pointing downwards. So these are things going backwards in time. Okay, so that's clearly breaking the laws of physics. But remember, it only happens within a short enough time that's within the quantum uncertainty principle for uncertain time. So does that mean that, that you know, I can go back in time and get my, my future mother to fall for me instead of my future father? Well, no, you don't have to worry about that happening because again, it, this only happens on a quantum time scale, which is typically less than a billionth of a second where it's uncertain what happens when. Now, ironically, Feynman published his on this, on, on, on uh, virtual particles going backward in time in three parts. And World War II caused the publication of part two to be delayed. And so it turns out that part three was published before part two. Ooh, what's going on there? Spooky, huh? So some other impossible things that can happen because of quantum uncertainty. You know, maybe Cinderella's fairy godmother was right. It turns out impossible things are happening every day. For example, inside something called a tunnel diode, which is probably in your phone and all kinds of electronics. And what happens in this tunnel diode is something called quantum tunneling. So a quantum tunnel is a kind of leap that is impossible because there's an intermediary 
energy level that's too high to get to. So let's suppose for simplicity, we're going from one energy level, taking a quantum leap to another energy level where there's no change in energy, but there's a barrier in between. This barrier has a higher energy level. And let's say we don't have enough energy to get up to that, to get over. So this is kind of like you've got, you're trying to get a boulder, boulder like over a ridge and it takes a lot of energy to get it there because you've got to get it up over the top and you're too tired. You don't have enough energy to get, get it down, get it over there. And so instead, somehow the, the boulder just by a quantum uncertainty appears on the other side. It's called tunneling because it's as if it went through a tunnel, but there's no tunnel there. It got through anyway, in spite of this barrier. And it happens because of the time uncertainty, because of the energy uncertainty. And it becomes a, a very important process in many of our technological devices. So what's the difference between an auto mechanic and a quantum mechanic? Well, an auto mechanic, when he wants to get the car into the garage, he opens the, the garage door so that he can get the car in. But the quantum mechanic, he just waits until the, the car tunnels through the door and gets in. The other difference is that a quantum mechanic is only needed if your car has really small problems. Well, Okay, we have these tunnel diodes and other devices. We can live without those, right? Without quantum tunneling. Do we really need quantum tunneling? Well, consider this. In inside, this is showing inside an atom and considering whether a proton from one atom can get inside the nucleus of another atom. So this is the going out the distance from the, the nucleus, the center of one nucleus and showing energy here. And the proton from another atom nearby, it doesn't have enough energy to get over this, this, this repulsion of between, uh, between like forces. The, the protons are both positive charges, so they repel each other. And the proton doesn't have enough energy to get through there. But because of quantum tunneling, the proton can get through anyway. And this is why it's possible to have nuclear fission. And nuclear fission is what powers stars, including the sun. So do we really need quantum tunneling? Well, it boils down to this. Do we really need the sun? Can we get along without it? So let's come to an even weirder theory that comes out of quantum physics. Paul Dirac used quantum physics and studied the vacuum. Now, vacuum, we all know what that is. It's empty space. There's nothing in it, right? Well, he showed that the vacuum is not empty. It's full of stuff. In fact, it's totally crammed with stuff. It's so crammed so full that it can't hold any more. Crammed completely full. This is called the Dirac Sea, because what it's crammed with is particles that have negative energy and negative mass. What does that mean, negative energy, negative mass? Nobody knows, but apparently 
you can't see them, you can't touch them, you can't do anything with them because they have negative energy and mass. They're just there. And so there's this C, if we plot uh, energy, positive energy going up, negative energy going down, they're in this C, which is down below, below zero energy, just crammed full, crammed full of, let's say these are uh, electrons. It's so crammed full of these, these negative energy electrons that there's not room for a single one, single one extra to fit in there. So even though there's nothing there, something and there's lots of it. So now let's make some room in the vacuum. How do we do that? We put in a lot of energy. How much energy equals MC squared? And we're going to excite one of these electrons in the Dirac C, excite it up. So now it has positive energy. So now it's a real electron with positive energy and positive mass. And it leaves a hole behind. Remember, the, 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 the vacuum was completely full, but now it's got empty space there. It's got a hole. Well, that hole is the absence of a particle of negative energy and negative mass. So the absence of, of negative energy is positive energy, and the absence of negative mass is positive mass. So the hole has real mass, real energy, and that hole is what we call antimatter, you may have heard of. So the absence of this negative is a positive. So can you think of another example, something that's positive because it's the absence of a negative that makes a positive? Any uh, examples, ideas on that? Again, an exercise to do on your own. Well, what a crazy theory is that? And yet, uh, after he published this theory, and at this point, you know, scientists were getting used to the idea that, well, this is crazy, but it's quantum physics. It's got to be crazy. Maybe it's true. So they did publish it. And sure enough, within a few years, someone observed it actually happened exactly follow the equations, proving that it's true. So this crazy theory of the, the Dirac C is became accepted, proven, absolutely true science. So it shows sometimes science can be really stranger than science fiction. This is as bizarre as anything you'll see in a sci-fi movie. Well, when I was a student at DLA, I heard that Dirac was coming there to give a lecture. And I had to go to this because I had, you know, I couldn't believe I had been taught something so strange in my physics classes. I had to go hear the guy say it for himself and hear it with my own ears, you know from this, this Nobel Prize winning physicist. And sure enough, I got to hear him describe this, this theory. Uh, Einstein talked about Dirac saying this balancing on the dizzying path between genius and madness is awful. Universe is much weirder than we can even imagine. So what happens when matter and antimatter meet up and they get back together again? Well, the matter falls back into the hole. So now the hole is filled. So the matter is gone because it went into the hole, into the vacuum. And the hole is gone because the hole got filled. So the matter and the antimatter both vanish when they meet up. And the energy comes back out. So when the energy comes back out, kablooey, which now answers the question about 
the famed Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, why did he get a stomachache? Well, first he ate the pasta, then he ate the antipasta. That's what happens. It disappears because remember a vacuum is when all of the spaces where negative energy particles can be are all filled. So when antimatter comes out of the vacuum, it leaves a hole. So when the matter comes back to the hole, it can fall into the hole and now it goes back to being a vacuum. Well, no, the antimatter is the hole. So when the matter falls into the hole and fills the hole, the hole is gone. And the hole was the antimatter. So the antimatter is also gone. So the matter and antimatter, they're both annihilating each other and there's nothing left. So you used to have matter and now you don't have it. But we know that can happen because E equals MC squared, matter can change into energy and vice versa. So the matter and the antimatter disappear and, a, and, a lot, and the energy comes back. A nuclear explosion. So people have proposed many uses for antimatter, and unfortunately, one of the uses, of course, is for making bombs. But uh, luckily, there are, there are more peaceful things proposed, like making rocket fuel that could be enough for uh, going tremendous distances. Uh, I'm going to finish part one in uh, just a couple minutes. Uh, another use is something Stephen Hawking was working on, and his his followers continuing that is a way to see a black hole. Okay, even though light can't come out of a black hole, it turns out that it can create matter and antimatter near it. And we can see that, or at least the theory says we can see it. This is simulating what that would look like. And then also it's, it's proposed to be used for cancer treatment. Well, these are all proposed, not yet demonstrated, but it turns out I was surprised to find out antimatter really does matter because it is currently being used, it has been used for a while for something called PET, positron emission tomography. A positron is antimatter of an electron. And it's extremely sensitive, much more sensitive than any other type of, uh, of diagnosis. So it can be used to uh, uh, diagnose patients and for doing research. Here shows an example how they could do a uh, brain scans and they it's so sensitive they can actually detect differences among different types of, of addicts addicts well normally it's very expensive to create antimatter you know, big machines for that but you can get a little antimatter of you of your own you can get one positron every minute or so all you have to do is get a banana a banana's got some radioactive potassium which is actually emitting a little bit of antimatter. So does that mean that we need to um, uh, mark those as radioactive? Uh, well, no, it turns out that's, that's not anywhere near uh, a dangerous level. So I'll conclude the first uh, part by mentioning this reading you might do. The first two of these have connections to Eastern philosophy. And um, the first one in particular, The Dancing Wooly Masters. Would you ever guess that that's a book about physics? Anyway, I love this book, so I'm going to recommend this. And my recommendation is especially meaningful because I hate Eastern philosophy. I have no interest in it. And yet I love this book. Uh, then we've got 
other books mentioned, um, one of them by uh, Werner Heisenberg himself. And then the last two I mentioned here, uh, they were useful in putting this uh, together. And in particular, they've got such great titles. I had to mention them. Banana World, Quantum Physics for Primates. Can you, what better title could there be you know, for that? Uh, How the Hippies Saved Physics. So if you want a list of this, you can uh, just write to me for that. And that concludes part one. And we're going to take uh, an hour break, uh, one hour break for lunch. And I'll continue with part two. So don't touch that dial. I'm going to tell you a lot more about this. We'll talk about uh, um, maybe maybe we'll save the question period for later because it's we're running late. We'll talk about that that cat and all sorts of other strange things. So you'll want to come back, or if you can't uh, catch the rest of the talk at, at a later time. Uh, thank you. Yes, uh, oh, yeah, this is Jed. Jed, yeah, yeah. Brad. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, I'm not, I'm not fully, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I can't say I'm clear on the mathematics. Um, yeah. So, yeah, how would you describe your, 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 uh, again, you can ask questions or comments during it if if, they, if you keep them brief. And uh, I guess we don't need to. Often I give this uh, part two on a different day from part one, so I give a recap about a long time ago in a continent far, far away. Uh, but since I just talked about this a couple hours ago, we'll skip ahead. And. First question we'll address, uh, I've talked about all kinds of weird things going on in quantum physics. And the question is, why don't we see all this in our daily lives? We generally don't come across this stuff. And that's because we live in what's called the macroscopic world, as opposed to the microscopic world. And we rarely ever see the effect of one quantum or a few quanta. So instead of seeing quantum, quantum effects, we see the effects of zillions of quanta and it all averages out or washes out. So although it's possible to experience one quantum, this is unusual. But some people have imagined what it might be like if suppose somehow we could become ultra microscopic and you wonder who has been to quantum land. Well, of course, Alice, after going to Wonderland, of course, she would end up in Quantum Land. So this is an, an amusing uh, little book I have where she talks to uh, uh, electrons and photons and wave functions and such. And then on the right, there's Mr. Tompkins. Now, this is 
This is a gem of a book written by a famous physicist, George Gamow. Mr. Tompkins is a retired accountant. And uh, he goes to the local college and he sits in on physics lectures. And invariably, he falls asleep during the lecture. And he has some really wild dreams about what he's, what he's hearing in the lectures. So that, that's an amusing book. And then in the center here, we have actually a comic book or graphic, graphic novel. If you imagine that this talk were put into a comic book, it might end up something like, something like this. So I'm, I'm not sure I recommend it, but it, it's weird if you want to take a look at that. So uh, anyone want to give another example of a work of fiction describing a visit to the quantum world? Anyone seen something, uh, movies or whatever? might think about that and w with what you've learned here think about whether it's it's uh has some scientific accuracy or just baloney so remember schrodinger's wave equation <coughs> often <coughs> excuse me this wave equation will combine two things that are mutually exclusive so we might have a wave equation that talks about um, says that, you know, combining wave functions for a photon that went through one slit and a photon that went through another slit, even though we've shown that it can't go through both. So we have a superposition of two things that are, that are mutually exclusive and can't both be at the same time. So what does that mean? Well, according to Schrodinger and Max Born, we have the ensemble interpretation. So it's interpreted in terms of a statistical ensemble. Imagine uh, uh, this happening many times. And statistically, it's telling us, you know, that 50% of the time it's one and 50% of the time it's the other on average. But an alternative explanation um, was started by Niels Bohr in Copenhagen. And so it's called the Copenhagen interpretation, in which it's saying that well, the wave function is actually saying that both things happen simultaneously, even though they can't both happen. So, and, and somehow, because of Niels Bohr's prestige and all this, this became sort of the standard or orthodox interpretation. Uh, hard, hard for me to understand why that was, but there were uh, not a lot of exceptions that rejected this interpretation. And basically it was saying that maybe you know, mutually exclusive realities somehow coexist. So we come back to the question, well, can a photon go through both, both slits in the double slit experiment? Well, if you think about it, I mean, you know, if your hotel room could be both to the left and to the right, or if a car can park on both sides of a street, you know, I mean, it must be possible if they have to put up a sign telling you not to do that. Or if a dumpster can be both empty and full, you know, well then maybe a photon can go through both slits. So what's another example of the supposed coexistence of realities which cannot really exist at the same time? Any, any examples? Or Something to, something to think about. So we all know why did the chicken cross the road? Why didn't the chicken cross the road? Well, because its wave function was already on both sides. 
So you might wonder, as I have wondered, all these brilliant physicists, I mean, Niels Bohr was just amazingly brilliant. Why would he and so many of his followers, why would they accept something as crazy as the Copenhagen interpretation? And I wonder if maybe he had something, somehow it was related to the funding for their research because the funding came from the Royal Danish Academy of Science. And it turns out they got their funding mostly from Carlsberg beer. So maybe there's a connection there. Well, as um, I pointed out, and we'll continue to point out, uh, Dr. Einstein, who really started quantum physics, um, you know, he wasn't happy with the direction that it was going. It was his brainchild, and yet these, these crazy scientists in, in Copenhagen, what were they doing with it? You know, it started out okay, but he, he was not happy. He I actually spent, ended up devoting a lot of his life to, to trying to prove that quantum physics was wrong, that it had made some mistakes. It started out okay when he invented it, but from there, it just took off in directions which were too crazy for his taste. And he kept trying to prove that, um, that it was a mistake. And he was, you know, trying to, to, to stop it. And it kind of reminded me of like another doctor who, who devoted his life to trying to, to destroy his own creation. Well, Einstein was lamenting about this to Schrodinger you know, talking about your way, the Schrodinger wave function being both one thing and another that just doesn't make sense. So Einstein thought of this example of a wave function for a powder that was 50% a barrel that was not yet exploded and 50% exploded. And he said, how does this make any sense to add these two together? Well, that got, that got Schrodinger thinking. Now Schrodinger was one of the, one of the people who agreed with Einstein completely sympathized and, and you know his interpretation of his wave function with it it's just about probabilities it's just saying it's 50 percent chance of this happening or that happening it's those other guys in copenhagen who think it means both but uh einstein's gun about gunpowder barrel example kind of got him thinking that you know we really need a, a, maybe a better example just to, to make the point that this Copenhagen interpretation is, is just nonsense, you know, someone has to set this straight. So he thought of his own example, only he made his own example even much more dramatic because his example became dum, 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 a matter of life and death. <laughs> and so here's his example, the famous example of the, the, the poor cat that gets put in a box. And before I, I, any of you cat lovers get worried, remember this is purely a thought experiment or often called the Gedanken experiment. That's Gedanken is just the German word for thought. And it means an experiment that you only think about and don't do and usually never do. And in fact, this experiment, there would be absolutely no point to ever doing this experiment. It would prove absolutely nothing, but it makes a point just by thinking about the experiment. So in his experiment, the life of this cat, whether this cat lives or dies, is decided by a single quantum event. 
And that event is occurs in this green ore here. It's a radioactive ore that, according to quantum physics, may or may not emit a particle, which will be detected by this Geiger counter down here. The Geiger counter will trigger this uh, electromagnetic switch, which will release the hammer. The hammer will swing down and hit this bottle of poison gas and kill the cat. And we're going to put all this in a box, which is going to be closed up and sealed so that we know nothing about what's going on inside the box. We can't see anything. We can't hear anything. We can't feel any vibrations. We have no knowledge of what's going on inside. And we're going to activate the Geiger counter for one half-life of this radioactive ore, which means there's going to be a 50% chance that it's going to trigger and break the, the, the poison vial. So, so uh, Schrodinger says, well, now the wave function for this cat, according to the, the Copenhagen interpretation, is 50% the wave function of a live cat and 50% the wave function of a dead cat. Now, according to Schrodinger's interpretation, that just means that, you know, if you built a thousand of these experiments, then about roughly 500 of them, the cats would be alive and 500, the cat would be dead, which is obvious. But according to the Copenhagen interpretation, this cat is somehow in limbo, is in a state where it's both alive and dead at the same time. And how ridiculous is that? So that was his point. So uh, I mentioned this is a thought experiment. So can you think of another thought experiment, Gedanken experiment that illustrates a point without actually doing the experiment? You just have to think about doing it. Um. I uh I I was kind of reminded of this thing that I uh saw once where someone was saying like if the multiverse theory exists then there's also a re uh, a reality where it does not exist and then the response was like the multiverse theory does not account for paradoxes except for the reality in which it does oh that's a good one right okay. <laughs> If the multiverse doesn't exist, that means there's another universe where it does exist. So <laughs> <laughs> interesting paradox. That's a good one. Okay. Well, you might wonder, why did he pick a cat? Why a cat? Why a no duck? If any of you remember uh, that scene in uh, the coconuts. Well, this photo I showed before of Schrodinger and, uh, and his, his two women actually cropped this. There's actually something down below. You can see... They're all looking at something down below. Could that be the family pet down there? Could down there, could it be the Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's dog? He's got a dog, not a cat. Oh, gosh, no wonder. Well, anyway, this may sound like a silly little uh, thought experiment, but Schrodinger took it very seriously. He wrote a paper called The Present Situation in Quantum Mechanics, and he published it in the most widely read, the most respected journal, and it got a lot of attention. Every physicist read this. He, he had a paragraph about this cat experiment. And so whenever physicists would get together, they'd, they'd get to arguing, is the cat alive or dead? Is it half alive and half dead? Is it, what is it, you know? This was a big controversy raging. And eventually the, the general public caught hold of this. And since then, this cat has become so well known that there is almost no end to the variety of t-shirts you can buy. These are designs 
all available on t-shirts now showing the cat being both dead and alive. By the way, what was what's the name of the cat? The cat is named Hamlet because the question is whether to be or not to be. So in Schrodinger's wave theory, this wave equation that, that shows the probabilities, according to Schrodinger at least, it varies continuously. It, it sort of evolves, shows the evolution of this wave until there is a, de a detection, a discontinuity. So at the moment, you know, at some point, this cat in this half alive, half dead state, at some point, you end up with a cat that's either dead or alive. It's 100%. Well, the theory doesn't cover when that discontinuity occurs, whether it's, you know, the cat becoming alive or dead, or the photon becoming either going through slit A or slit B. At some point, there's a determination. So Schrodinger called this the collapse of the wave function. Now, his theory, there's no doubt that his theory is, is correct. It always makes correct predictions. And yet it doesn't account at all for this collapse. So this collapse, basically we're saying it's beyond known science. There is no science which explains what happens when the wave function collapses to a definite state instead of a probabilistic state. So one morning, Dave wakes up in the morning. He's so blitzed he looks into the mirror and everything looks so fuzzy what is that red stuff on his face is it lipstick or what he's he's trying to remember what happened last night i can't even remember what which party i went to i think i, I went to alice's party and all the girls were kissing me and uh, or maybe uh, maybe i went to bill's party and everyone hated me and they beat me up and then his roommate pipes in you went to bill's party got beat up. He looks into the mirror again. Oh man, that's not lipstick. He's all beat up. Did you have to tell me that? You know, Dave was happier in his state of uncertainty. What happened to Dave? Poor Dave, his wave function collapsed. He's no longer in 50% in each party. He collapsed into, into the wrong party. So, how do we have a role in this? This wave function, does it collapse only when we observe it? Kind of comes down to the, the classic question in philosophy. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? You, you've probably heard of this. And the quantum version of that could be, if a cat dies and no one sees or hears it, is it really dead? You know, um, Einstein was having a, a talk with uh, David Merman who told him that, we now know that if no one's, nobody's looking at the moon, it's not there. And Einstein was aghast. You can't really, you can't seriously believe that. And then also he raised the question, well, if it depends on us looking, who is it that has to look? You know, what qualification and with what kind of look, you know, where is the cutoff between, you know, what makes the moon there and what doesn't? Would a sideways glance from a mouse, would that suffice to make the moon exist? You know, good point. Um, another physicist, uh, Nobel Prize winning Eugene Wigner, B 
being with consciousness must have a different role. Somehow having consciousness comes into quantum physics and has a different role than just, just instruments. So, you know, they're suggesting our consciousness is basically creating reality. Well, you might just wonder a, what kind of doodles. Is there a question? Yes. Yeah, I just, it, it's always me. I mean, it's not the person outside the box who makes the observation. Isn't it the Geiger counter that makes the observation? Well, you could say that, and yet the, um, the wave function is supposed to, according to some interpretations, it's supposed to say our knowledge. So if there's nobody to look at the Geiger counter, then did the Geiger counter really go off? You know, it's, it's uh, I don't understand it myself personally, but a lot of great physicists, you know, took, took this view that just an instrument registering something is not enough to collapse the wave function. It's some kind of consciousness of it. I know it sounds weird. I, I agree on that. So there, if you ever wondered what kind of doodles, what kind of cartoons a, a Nobel Prize winning physicist might make who subscribes to this view, we show here on the left, the physicist, this is the classic view of the physicist as the observer. So he's on one side of this very thick pane of glass. He's on one side and the universe is on the other side. And he is only observing it and this thick pane of glass keeps him separate. So he's looking at it and nature's over there. And that's replaced in the middle there with the new quantum view where now the observer becomes the participator and he breaks through this pane of glass. So he's now participating in the universe for some reason, his hands are now made of made of uh, dials from instruments. Uh, not sure what all this means. And then on the right, he's got a cartoon where the universe is looking at itself and thereby bringing itself into existence. Weird stuff. And and yet he got a Nobel Prize in physics and did a lot of great things. So you might ask, when is the fat Kate the cat's fate resolved? You would think that it's, you know, it's when the Geiger counter registered, right? I mean, there shouldn't be any consciousness evolved, evolved, involved. Or is it, well, only when we open the box and look into it. And what about the cat's consciousness? Does that count? So what, what makes this occur, this, this collapse of the wave function, as, as far as deciding whether the cat stays alive or dies? Is our consciousness creating reality? That's what the Copenhagen interpretation seems to be saying. And you would think this example of, of Schrodinger's would have put this discussion to an end, but it didn't. Knock, knock. Knock. Quantum. Who's there? Quantum uncertainty until you open the door. So, we haven't talked about the, the cat's mate. The poor cat's mate is anxiously awaiting for the box to be opened and to find out his mate's uh, fate. Here he is in an a, um, airplane carrier that may or may not contain a live animal. Of course, it's got radioactivity. It's got poison in it. 
and it's addressed to uh, Schrodinger's actual address in uh, Dublin. So what do we learn from this, the cat in the box? Well, according to Schrodinger, remember this is the guy who invented the, the, the cat example, invented the wave equation. So you might think he's got some authority on the subject. His point is that interpreting the wave equation to explain a single quantum event of this emission by the radioactive particles, one radioactive or one quantum event, that's absurd, leads to absurd conclusions, this whole idea of a cat being half dead and half alive. But according to Bohr and the Copenhagen interpretation, the wave equation is showing that these mutually exclusive conditions of being alive and dead exist simultaneously and is not resolved until it's observed when we open the box and look in, which makes you wonder, is something rotten in Denmark? Maybe the cat in the hat is starting to uh, decompose and go rotten too. So what did you learn from Schrodinger's cat experiment? Any thoughts on what you learned from this? They smoke too much in Copenhagen. Yeah, right. Too much of that Carlsberg beer. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to a guy named Jack Rosenberg. At least he was born that way. He changed his name. He changed his first name to uh, Werner because he idolized Werner Heisenberg so much. And he changed his last name to Earhart. And he was the founder of something called EST. If any of you remember that, this kind of um, cult uh, practice from, from years ago. So all kinds of people idolize physicists, even, even uh, whack jobs, you know. So Werner, uh, Werner Earhart uh, went on, he hired a physicist, uh, the most notable of, the, of the, the hippie quantum physicists, Jack Sarfati. He was a serious physicist, but he was also very well known as for his hippie lifestyle. He got uh, funded by Est to show how quantum physics proves their principles of consciousness. Well, Jack got a letter from Martin Gardner. Many of you have heard of him as a columnist for Scientific American, a great writer. I think I've read everything he ever wrote. He wrote in a letter, Jack, my friend, you know too much science to be wasting your talents trying to get funding for this, this nonsense. Do something honest instead, like maybe make a porno movie. His words, not mine. Well, Sarfati heeded the advice, not the part about the porno movie, but the part about not take, accepting this funding anymore. And he broke off his research with this. And this caused a big to-do. There was a big fuss over there. He had dared to challenge the, the great Werner Erhardt. And this, this break-off was slotted in cartoons by a friend of his uh, who incidentally later worked on The Simpsons. And I'll show you these, these cartoons. On the left, we see the, the hippie physicist is playing the part of Samson. And when he gets his strength back, he's breaking down the temple of money there, all the, all the money and the smiling face of Werner Erhardt. And then on the right, he's playing the part of David to um, Werner Erhardt's uh, Goliath. 
still smiling, of course, and as he's uh, being taken down by the physicist. Okay, another thing to consider is that when we observe something, of course, we're going to learn something by that, and we're going to decrease our uncertainty about it. So we may not know, uh, you know, what slit the uh, uh, photon went through until we have a, uh, it hits a detector behind it, and then we know something. But we can't violate the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So when we learn some information, we have to, something has to happen to increase the uncertainty. And this means that when we measure something, it has to change. So just making an observation of something is going to change it. And that way, we may become uncertain about what it was in the past. But then when we observe it and become uncertain about that, we become uncertain about the present. We become uncertain about the present and the future. So it seems like we change things just by observing them. So the, the, the past may become clear, but the past isn't, isn't there anymore. Now the present becomes uncertain. So outside of quantum physics, you think of an example, something that changes just because of the, you know about it, your knowing about it changes it. How many quantum physicists does it take to change a light bulb? None. Once they've observed it, it's already changed. Well, once again, once again, Einstein was griping, what are you guys doing with quantum physics? It doesn't matter what we know. Who cares about what we know, what we, our consciousness, our observations? Nature knows what's really happening. That's all that matters. We might find out about it, but the laws of nature only depend on nature knowing what's happening. And he said quantum physics is incomplete. It doesn't account for what's really happening. There must be something really happening, regardless of what we know. So he postulated there must be hidden variables. So there are variables that control what's really happening, but the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which was established fact, Nobody, Einstein, nobody, or anyone, nobody questioned the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. That's proven fact by, by many, many experiments. So there must be some hidden variables that, that we can't know about, but they're still there, and nature knows what they are. And Heisenberg pointed out, well, what about your theory of relativity? That doesn't have hidden variables in it. Oh, wise guy, eh? And Heisenberg had to admit, touche, a, a good trick should not be tried twice. So he was, he was guilty as charged. But still, in quantum physics, he thought there must be hidden variables. Well, along came John Bell, a Scotch physicist, who came up with a, a very profound theory about hidden variables. And he showed, no, there cannot be hidden variables. In fact, we can't even talk about them. He called them unspeakables. He didn't know there were unspeakable things going on in physics, but that's the term he used. And this was not just a supposition. He has a very famous Bell's theorem proving that there are no hidden variables. So we come back to the question of 
what is reality? What is really happening independently of whether we could know it about it or not due to quantum uncertainty? Well, let's take into account here, there's something which has been known, you know, throughout the ages really, is that we don't directly perceive reality. We may think there's a reality there, but what we perceive of it is always different. For example, our, our, our senses all have limitations, like we, we see things basically as, as two-dimensional objects because that's how our eyes see. Our eyes have a two-dimensional array on them. So if we're looking at a cube, for example, straight on one face, because of perspective, it'll look like a, a picture frame shape. But we know it's not a picture frame shape, it's actually a cube. And by moving around from different angles and putting that all together, we may figure out that it's a cube, but that's not what we actually see. And our senses have inaccuracies. Nothing's perfect about them. Of course, they're not perfect. And then things get distorted. The way something looks depends on the lighting. It depends on, on the conditions of the air, the weather. And also depends on our mental state. Our past experience biases us. Our brain sees, figures out what things are there. And we see things based on inferences by our brain. And it's also affected like by our emotional state. All these things go into affecting it. And uh, here's my favorite example of showing how uh, we don't, what we see is not real. You may have seen this before. In this picture, you see squares A and B. And you ask, how would you compare the colors or the shades of those two squares, A and B? Now, I look at that and square B is obviously much lighter than square A. But let's test that by taking it out of context. What I'm going to do is I made a mask. This is showing a black mask, and the white diamonds there are two holes cut in this mask. And I'm going to place this mask over that picture. So I'll leave the, the original picture there. I'll create a duplicate. And then I'm just going to put this mask on top so those two, only those two squares show through. It's out of context. And I swear it's the exact same picture. All I've done is put something over it. And amazingly enough, when you take it out of context, the colors are identical. When you look at the picture on the left, your brain is making inferences about the shades, the shadowing and all that. But what's actually there is identical colors. And you can measure those squares A and B with any kind of spectrometer, any kind of optical device, and they will show you the colors are identical. So just an example that what we see and the way our brain interprets it is not what's really there. Which leads us to a story about Pablo Picasso. So a man commissioned Picasso to paint a portrait of his wife. And the portrait looked like that. And the man saw this portrait. He said to Picasso, what, a, what on earth is that? That doesn't look like my wife. Well, the wife was not present at the time. So Picasso says, oh, really? What does your wife look like? And the man reaches into his wallet. He pulls out this little wallet photo of his wife. He says, that's what she looks like. And Picasso picks up this little wallet photo. He studies it very carefully. He says, I don't remember her being so small. And of course, he's trying to make a point. 
And the point is that a, an image, a perception of something can never be the same as the thing itself. It's, it's not reasonable to expect an image, a photo, a sculpture, whatever you do, whatever you create is not gonna be the same as the actual thing. It's not gonna be reality. It's not reasonable to expect it to look like reality. And if it's not gonna look like reality, it may as well look like that, right? Another artist, Rene Magritte made this very famous painting and the translation of the writing there is, this is not a pipe. And you say, what is he talking about? This is not a pipe. Of course I can see that's a pipe. Oh, wait. That's not a pipe, it's a painting of a pipe. That's his point, is that a pipe, a painting of a pipe is not the same thing as a pipe. Uh, incidentally, the title of this painting, if anybody knows the title of this painting, don't, don't say it because uh, I wanna give everyone a chance to guess what the title of this painting is. And I'll, I'll give you a hint. The first hint is that this is not a title, this is not a pipe. In other words, this is not a pipe is not the title of the painting. And the second hint I'll give you is that the title is, it's right in front of you. So any guesses? What is the title of that? It's right in front of you. Okay, and the title is The Treachery of Images. See, it's right there, as I said. And of course, the point of this painting, The Treachery of Images is that our images of reality are not reality. They're, they're treacherous because they're trying to fool us. They're trying to look like reality, but they can never be reality. They can never really look like reality. So what's another artist who sheds light on this difference? Uh, any other ideas? I've given two examples. There's surely other artists who make this point. Okay, so we understand our perception of reality is not reality, but we all, or many of us at least, assume that a reality is there, even though we can't directly perceive it, a reality is there and it's causing our perception. Maybe there's various distortions, but there's something really there. Or is there, okay, after all, it's shown we can't, there can't be any hidden variables there can't be a reality that we can't know about beyond the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So it, it's calling it a question, well, is there really a reality? What is reality? Uh, quantum physics doesn't tell us about reality. It only tells us about what we perceive and that we cannot perceive reality. So it, it, it tells us, it makes predictions statistically if we do something many times, but for each one of those times, it doesn't tell us what actually happens and it can't tell us what actually happens. It tells us that it can't tell us that because that would violate the uncertainty principle. So in the words of Heisenberg, some physicists would, would like to come back to the idea of an objective real world that exists independently of whether we observe it. This, however, is impossible. So it's calling into question the existence of reality itself underlying our perceptions. Well, how can we explain what we see at the quantum level? What explanations have been proposed? 
Well, an interesting one, it's called the many worlds interpretation. It's also known as a type, a type of multiple universes or the, the multiverse. But uh, those names are also used for other things within physics. So the many worlds interpretation makes it clear that that's the one that's specifically talking about this problem in quantum physics. And it answers the question, well, how does God decide which quantum possibility happens? You know, God or nature? Maybe Einstein was right. Maybe God doesn't throw dice because the universe splits so that all possibilities happen. So there is no actual decision for one thing to happen. Wherever there's a choice, all choices happen. So in the case of the cat, we have the universe like a movie here. On the left, it's the, the cat is still alive and that at some point there's a split where in one, the universe splits into two universes and in one of them, the cat is alive and in the other one, the cat is dead. So the question of is, does the cat stay alive or does the cat die? The answer is both things happen, but they both happen in two different universes, not in the same universe. And so there's no randomness. We might think it's random whether the cat lives or died. No, it's 100% certain, not random at all, that the cat will live in one universe and the cat will die in the other universe. And so also there's no collapse of the wave function. This gets rid of that problem because it never does resolve. The cat does one or the other. The cat always does both. And these, these, word, these worlds, they stay entangled. I'll talk, talk more about that later. So it's kind of like when an amoeba splits. If you're familiar with a, this organism, which reproduces just by splitting, and now the two daughter amoebas, they once were the same organism, like the same universe, and they split into two different ones, which where now they can go their separate ways and they can have different lives at that point. And different things can happen with them. Um, or identical twins, same thing. Well, every time the universe splits, everything in the universe splits. And that includes me as the observer. So we say the cat is alive in one universe and dead in the other universe. Well, I also go into both these universes. And in one of them, I'm a me that sees the cat alive. And in the other one, I'm a me that sees the cat dead. Let's consider another question. Should I go to the physics lecture or should I stay home and watch TV? And um, by TV, I don't mean watching this lecture on Zoom. Um, so. And the answer could be, well, do you do both? You don't have to choose one or the other. You do one in one world and you do the other in the other world and you never have to make a choice. Well, this may sound um, preposterous for a few reasons. One is that consider how many new worlds are constantly being created because the universe doesn't just split every time there's a, a, a cat in a box that might die. The universe er splits every time a photon might have gone this way or that way. Every time an electron might have gone this way or that way. So you can imagine how often this is happening for every photon, every electron, every, every particle in the universe where it, one thing could happen or another thing could happen. The possibilities are just so many, in, inconceivable. And just the idea that anything, if anything can happen, we're saying it does happen. 
if it's possible to happen, then it happens. And you know, personally, I wouldn't even take this seriously, except that many respected physicists um, follow this and find value in it, uh, including this guy. So, you know, it makes me wonder, um, who am I to say that this is a, a worthless idea? Maybe, maybe there's something to it. So how many quantum physicists does it, what, what do quantum physicists do when life hands them lemons? Everything, right? Everything is possible. Will, they will do. So can I communicate with these other me's that are in the other, the other worlds, the other universes? Well, the, the quantum uncertainty principle would be violated if that happened, if there were any kind of communication or travel between the different worlds. So you might see movies where people travel between these different universes, but that would be a violation of, of, of uh, quantum physics. But some physicists claim that someday it will be possible to prove the existence of these other worlds. And some people will claim that they're aware of their other selves in the other worlds. Um, does anyone, you know, I've given this to audiences where most of the people in the audience would, have, would answer yes to that, absolutely. Um, anyone want to comment on that? Uh, this lecture attracts some strange audiences. I, I got invited to give this uh, the, the, um, by the, um, the uh, kind of Institute recent, for Intuitive uh, Thinking. Oh, yes? The recent Doctor Strange movie said that that's what happens when you're dreaming. When, when you'd what? When you're dreaming. Oh, when you dream. Right, right. Okay, that's a, a common claim. When you're dreaming, you're actually going or seeing what's happening in other worlds. There was uh, also the new movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Yes, there we go. That uh, used the multiverse theory to kind of take like a philosophical uh, take as well on like the meaning of our consciousness and our existence and like what, if the multiverse theory does exist, what does that mean for our existence in this world kind of thing? Right, right. The idea that everything happens all at once. There are no choices. It's all happening. Everything possible. And if you could communicate in another world, what would you say to the other you? That's another another thing to think about. Might be fun. Well, we're going to, let's see, we're going to move on. Well, what does this say about our free will? Because every time we're faced with a choice to make, we choose all these possibilities just in different worlds. You know, you might think, well, you know, I could, I'm free to choose to put up my right hand instead of my left hand. But you think that was your free will, but in another universe, you put, up, you put up your left hand. So you really didn't make a choice because all the choices happened. We didn't make a choice at all. So if we don't make choices, that means free will is irrelevant. We really never actually uh, exercise our free will. But, or in the words of Yogi Berra, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Okay, once again, Einstein griping, what are you guys doing? This is nuts, all this stuff, you know? I mean, how did all this come out of here? Okay, and he figured, okay, now we've got him. 
he's got a way to prove that quantum physics, the way that it's developed, is wrong. Okay? And it has to do with quantum entanglement. Uh, Schrodinger came up with this idea of quantum entanglement. applies when two or more particles are in a state where they have a single wave function for, for uh, both particles or for all particles. They're entangled together. Uh, by this time, Einstein had come to the US to Princeton University and with two of his colleagues, he published a paper uh, called the EPR uh, paper or the EPR experiment after their initials. Again, it was a, a thought experiment, Gedanken experiment. And immediately it became one of the most famous ex of all experiments in the history of physics, long, long before the experiment could ever be done. So the EPR experiment, it's about two particles that are somehow generated together so that they're entangled. So they have a single wave function that they share between them. And one example is where a single photon or electron could, change, could be converted into two photons. And the two photons are now entangled. Or another example is what we talked about, where a photon could create matter and antimatter. And the electron and the positron are now are now entangled. So these two entangled particles, we're going to allow them to, to drift apart. You know, they're moving relative to each other. So they're going to drift apart, get further and further away from each other. We're going to suppose that nothing else gets in their way. Somehow this is done in a, a place where they're just cleared free. So they, they don't interact with anything else. Because if they did, that would unentangle them. So they stay entangled and they can get further and further apart, arbitrarily far apart. So we can imagine that they may go until they're, you know, billions of light years apart, maybe, and they still and they still are entangled. And the fact that they're entangled means they're still connected to each other. Now, if we make a measurement on one of these particles, uh, classically the example is used, it's spin tell which way it's spinning, clockwise or counterclockwise. We know that by conservation of spin, that the two particles have, to, their spins have to cancel out. So if one of them is spinning clockwise, the other one has to be spinning counterclockwise. So if we detect that one of them is clockwise, then the other one, before we detect it, we already know that it's spinning counterclockwise, even though it's very far away. So we're learning about something indirectly. So these two particles interacted a long time ago when they were close to each other, and now they're far apart. And we can still learn about one of them by observing the other one. Okay, as an example, I'll give my friend who buys presents for my brother and me, he buys two identical pairs of shoes as present, and he uh, packs them up for some reason, these are radioactive shoes. And he sends two shoes to me and he sends two shoes to my brother who's far away. And I, I open my box and there are two left shoes. My, my dits of a, of a friend has got two left shoes that he sent to me. So obviously I know immediately that my brother must've got two right shoes, okay? Because that's how it's gotta add up somehow. So even though my brother's far away, 
without communicating with my brother, I know instantly, as soon as I open my package, what is going on with the other. So this would be kind of like an analogy to the two particles that are entangled and they get separated. So when we measure one, the spin of one tells us about the other. So an example, can you give an example about how you learn something indirectly by observing something else that interacted with it before? So when you look at one thing, you instantly know about something else now far away. Uh, so someone has said that quantum entanglement, it, it isn't so hard to explain. Okay, I have, let's say I have two socks that are entangled and I move them apart and I put one sock onto my right then the other sock instantly becomes a sock, no matter how far away it is. Um, and just in case you didn't realize that's a joke, uh, because I, I came across a bunch of people who insisted that this was not a joke, that this was a serious way to explain uh, quantum entanglement, totally overlooking the fact that a right, there's no such thing as a right sock and a left sock, and, and putting it on your foot is not going to change the other one anyway. Okay, well, so far, what I've described about, you know, about the shoes and about the, the spin, it's not demonstrating anything mystifying, okay? Of course, you know, you've got a left shoe here, you've got a right shoe there. There's nothing about that this is not a mystery so i would like to explain to you what is so mystifying about the ptr experiment quantum entanglement however for this audience that's not going to work it's very complicated you'd have to know a lot more about math so we're not going to go that instead i'm going to use analog try to make it simple and it's not going to be the same but it's going to capture the essence of the mystery so instead of talking about quantum particles, we're going to talk about magical coins. And we're going to, and instead of in the experiment, we're choosing, choosing like which spin axis to measure like a vertical axis, horizontal axis. Instead of that, we're going to exercise our free will in this by choosing which hand we're going to use to flip a coin, right hand or left hand. So our free will comes into it. And then randomness comes into it because we're going to flip the uh, measuring the particle, we're going to flip the coin. So it takes into account the, the probability that's involved. And then when we read it, uh, when we measure the spin of a particle, we're going to take that as looking at the coin and seeing, did it fall heads or tails? So I can just talk about something simple in terms of flipping coins, but still capture the, the essence of, of what's going, of, of what is the mystery here. And remember, good enough for late, okay? So, you go to the carnival, you go to the midway games where people are you know, throwing tennis balls and knocking down bottles and stuff like that. But there's one booth, which is interesting because, well, for one thing, it's got a strange name, Quantum Entanglement. And the other is that there's almost nothing there except he's got the, the carny working there. He's got two nickels, that's it. What kind of game is that? So tree, what is it? Carney explains how the game works, okay? You pay, Pays your money, you pay one dollar to play, and these two entangled points here. I'm going to give one to you, and I'm give you, going to give one to your friend here, and you're going to flip your coin and uh, choose whether you want to use your right hand or left hand. Oh, right hand or left hand, and uh, your friend can do the same. 
and I'm going to make a prediction. And if my prediction comes out right, then I win and I keep your dollar. But if I'm wrong, then you win. And I'm going to give you a hundred bucks. How about that? How does that sound? Well, sounds interesting. So what is his prediction? So basically what he predicts is if you and your friend choose the same hand, you both flip it with the right hand or you both flip it with the left hand, then your coins are kind of going to come out different. You're going to get one head, one tails. But if you and your friend choose different hands, one right, one left, then the two coins are going to come out the same. Both heads or both tails. Simple enough. So you think about this a little and you say, you know what? I'm pretty sure that I got a 50-50 chance of winning here, okay? You know? But this sounds too good to be true because he's not giving me 50-50 odds. He's giving me 100 to 1 odds. So there's something fishy going on. Let's look at these coins. So he gives you one coin. You take the coin, you look at it, you flip it. It seems perfectly normal, okay? It gets heads or tails about 50% of the time on average, and it's totally random. Look at the other coin. Again, totally, totally, totally normal. There's nothing strange about either of these coins. So you say to them, why are you giving me 100 to 1 odds? You know, I have a 50, 50 chance of winning. There's got to be a catch. The carney says, well, of course there's a catch. I Don't you, can't you read? It says right there, coin of entanglement. These coins are entangled. I'm not even hiding the, the, the catch, you know? It's right, full disclosure there. These coins are entangled. That means, see, each of these coins by itself, the coin is perfectly normal but when you consider the two coins together now that's not normal okay these are entangled coins I, I told you. well you're still suspicious okay why is he doing this you know this is too good a deal to be true he's got to be cheating okay and um well you know obviously okay i'm gonna flip my coin you're going to see which hand i use you're going to see whether i get heads or tails then you're going to go to my friend and see which hand he uses. somehow you're going to make it you're going to make the coin land the right way so you win okay so you know some kind of trickery there finally says look okay i know what you're thinking i'm just going to move you and your friend far apart okay so you know so by the time i see what you did which hand you picked and how your coin went i'm not going to have time to go over to your friend before he flips his coin, okay? So there's no way I could possibly cheat. You say, okay, well, you're gonna, look, I know, you've got a secret accomplice that I don't know about. Your accomplice, you're here, here by me, your accomplice is over by my friend. When you see what I do, then you're gonna send a signal over to your accomplice somehow. You know, you got a, a secret microphone or, or whatever. You're gonna get him a signal and then your friend is gonna do something and he's gonna, you know, make you win. That kind of says, look, look, I said, I'm gonna move you too far apart. You don't understand how far apart I'm talking about. Okay, I'm gonna put your friend in a Tesla Roadster. We're gonna send him off to Mars. Okay, and now we're gonna do the, the coin flip. Now it takes a few minutes to, for, the fastest possible signal for like light signal even to get to Mars. It doesn't matter if I have a secret, secret accomplice, accomplice, accomplice there. I can't possibly get a, get a signal over to him to do anything about it. So 
you know, your friend has got a few minutes. If, if he flips his coin sooner, there's no way that I can cheat. So uh, you say to him, well, okay, so you can't, that only works because you're limited by sending a signal, the speed of light. Well, it just says it's in a signal that's faster than light, right? Simple enough. And he looks at you like you're out of your mind. What are you talking about faster than light? You think I'm gonna send a signal faster than light? Are you nuts? Well, why does he say this? What is so strange about sending a signal faster than light? And for this, we have to go to Einstein's theory of relativity. So you may have heard about the space-time continuum. Well, here it is, what's called Minkowski space. To keep it simple, I'm only going to show one dimension of space and one dimension of time, of course. So the vertical axis here, up means up and down means down. Got that? And left means going backward in time and right means going forward in time. So right in the middle there, that's where, where we are here and now. So in this space time around us, we're going to divide this up into different regions. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to consider a light beam that starts down below us and comes up and say goes right by us and continues going on up. And that makes this diagonal line going up. And then we're going to consider another light beam that starts above us and comes down and goes right by us and continues going down. And these two lines are going to divide up space-time into four different regions. Now, the region on the left here in green, that's the past. We all know what the past is, things that have already happened. And on the right, the yellow region, that's the future, okay, things that haven't happened yet. Well, what about these orange regions here? What about those? That is all relative. We can't say if it's the past or the future. It's impossible to say because whether it's the past, future, or present is all relative. That's what relativity theory is about. So information cannot go there. It cannot go into these relative regions because to go to those regions would require a signal going faster than light. And that what happens there is that you might send be sending your signal into the past. And that means that the message could be received before it's sent. How can you send, how can you receive a message that hasn't been sent yet? And what is that message going to say if it's talking about things that haven't happened yet? And what does that say about our, our free will? You know, you if somebody already received the message you sent in the past, you can't now say, oh, I decided I'm not going to send that message, or I'm going to send a different message, because they already got the message, okay? So this idea of sending a message faster than light just doesn't make any sense. Um, let's see. Oh, oh, okay. And you also notice that this relative region here, this takes up a lot of space time, you know? This, this no man's land here, it's, is, um, you know, the, the future and the past is really in the minority here. And if you go to two dimensions, that becomes even more true. Here's, you're showing a two dimensional diagram where now the plane there is east, west, north, south, 
and now time is going up and down and we've got a cone up here inside that cone is the future inside the cone on the bottom is the light is the past and everything else is all this no man's land it's all relative it's not the past it's not the present it's not the future or it could be any of those um and uh things get even worse in in 3d space plus time but of course that becomes very difficult to draw uh by the way this minkowski space-time representation was invented by one of uh, einstein's mentors so what's an example of something that's neither in the present the past or the future this this relative area what's something that that uh isn't in the past it isn't in the present it isn't in the future it's just wherever or, or all of those maybe oh by the way there is there is a happy ending to the story almost forgot the story about the shoes um in case you doubted that that story was true or thought who on earth wears such preposterous shoes I did finally get to the library. I did a right at the left. So now remember also, we're using Einstein's theory of relativity, and Einstein wrote the paper or invented its game, the EPR paper. So in this in in this EPR experiment, we are not going to violate. Einstein's theory of relativity, right? So the speed of light, violating that, sending a message faster than light. Don't even think about that. Okay, out. And the bartender says, hey, buddy, no one's allowed in here going faster than light. An electron walks into a bar. Did you get that? We got some time reversal there going faster than light. Okay, we've been talking about this game with a carny long enough. Let's do it. Let's play the game. Okay, so we play the game once. I flip the coin. My friend on Mars flips the coin, and we lose. Okay, but that's no surprise, right? We figured there's a fifty percent chance. Okay, so we, you know we lost. No big deal. So let's keep playing the game. We're gonna win. Uh, we play four more times, and we still lose all four times. Well. Okay, that's surprising, but it's not all that unlikely that I'm going to lose if I got 50% chance, you know, I'm just on a losing streak. You know, um, now note that every time we play the game, we have to get a fresh pair of coins, because when we measure the coins, when we flip the coins and, and observe them, they're no longer entangled, we disturb them. So we have to start off with newly freshly entangled coins, either new coins or take the old coins and re-entangle them somehow. And we're thinking, okay, I lost four times, unlikely, but let's keep playing because if I can just win one time, okay, I'm gonna get a hundred bucks. That's I'm not gonna worry about the four bucks I, 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 I um, five bucks I lost by playing it a few times. So we keep playing. We play a hundred times. We just lose every time. We lost a hundred bucks because somehow this Cardi wins every time. Well, how is this happening? Okay, well. These are magical coins, right? So somehow, okay, somehow the, the, the coins are magical, they're enchanted, okay, so they do strange things. Okay, I get it, there's something strange going on, but, but 
how is it that these coins know whether I'm going to use my right hand or my left hand, my friend, how does he know if we're going to use the same hand or different hands? This goes beyond being magical. This is, these are mind reading, or not even mind reading, because I could change my mind. And still the coins know. How, how can the coins be doing this? This is so baffling. Well, let's take a little divergence here, uh, because this is seeming to imply that one particle or one coin in the analogy is affecting the other one, even though it's far away. So affecting something that's distant, we call that action at a distance. Um, oh, maybe I should take a break here. Okay, why don't we, uh, I've been going for about an hour. So why don't we take a, a 10 minute break and then we will have the conclusion before we get to the bonus. We'll, uh, we'll start up here uh, at um, 2.30. Okay, for the final exciting conclusion, don't go away or don't go too far. Thank you. Okay, time for the final installment, although there will be a, a bonus after this. So remember way at the beginning, I talked about action at a distance. And I made a point about that because I said it would be coming up later. Well, now is the time because this, this experiment that we're talking about, the EPR experiment with the particles or the, or the quantum physics, seems to imply that things are affecting each other from far away, even though they're far away, there's some kind of interaction between the two. So this involves action at a distance, impacting something without physically contacting it. And as I mentioned, Physicists have known for a long time that this kind of thing occurs in nature. Uh, gravity, the moon pulling the earth around, around it, for example, or magnets uh, attracting or repelling. But it wasn't always that way. Uh, Isaac Newton, for example, uh, really objected to the idea of action at a distance. So great an absurdity. And then later, his own theory of gravity required action at a distance. Oh, he was so embarrassed. Oh, gosh, when I create a earth-shattering scientific theory, oh, gosh, I'm so embarrassed when that happens. Does anybody recognize that actor, by the way? Portraying, uh, yes? Weird Al, yes, Weird Al Yankovic. They're portraying Isaac Newton. I don't remember why. So, but today, uh, as I mentioned, Physicists have no problem. They're not embarrassed by action at a distance, so long as it meets two requirements. One is that the action has to get weaker as you get further away. Okay, so uh, action is strong when it's close. You know, gravity is strong when it's close, and or magnetism, and get weak as you get further and further away. And the other thing is that it doesn't violate, you know, sending, send, traveling at the speed of sound, because we know Einstein's theory of relativity rules that out well you might be saying well wait that's not true because think of the gravity for an example of the sun the sun's gravity pulling the earth around it making it curve around it well supposing that uh, the sun suddenly disappeared for some reason somehow sun disappeared well obviously if there's no sun there then the earth wouldn't continue orbiting around it, the Earth would just go off in a straight line and fly out into space, right? Right? Wrong. 
No, that would not happen because the information that the sun has disappeared cannot travel to the earth faster than light. It's going to take some time. In fact, gravity travels at the same speed that light does. So it takes the light from the sun about eight minutes to get there. So for eight minutes, we're going to still see the sun because there's eight minutes worth of light tra already traveling towards us. And for eight minutes, we're going to still feel the, the sun's gravity as well, because it's going to take eight minutes. There's eight minutes worth of gravity still coming there before we realize that the gravity of the sun is gone. So for eight minutes, the earth is going to continue going in a curved path, orbiting a sun that is no longer there. And finally, after eight minutes of doing that, then it gets word, oh, the sun's gone. What? Now it takes off flying into space. Okay. So the action at a distance can never travel faster than the speed of light in vacuum. Well, we make quantum entanglement uh, is it violates the rule about us getting weaker as you get further away because it stays just as strong no matter how far apart these particles get from each other you still have the same effect but it's not the only kind of entanglement that does that there is of course long distance romance yes Yes. Yes. Right. And uh, somehow the fact that they're entangled and they affect each other still holds no matter how far apart they are. And it still holds just as strongly as when they were close. Uh, and when you measure one of them, somehow it's, it seems that the other one is affected instantaneously, even though we have to travel faster than light, but the information is in the statistics. It's not a definite relation. It's a probabilistic one. As, as I showed in this experiment, it involves, you know, choices and, and uh, flipping of coins, random effects. So it's not obvious that something has happened. So because of the, the action at a distance, involved in the EPR experiment environs, involves um, violates these two requirements. It travels too fast and it stays too strong. Einstein said, this is spooky action at a distance. You may have heard that term. Okay, this is not the kind of action at a distance that's allowed. This is spooky, which by which he means it's unscientific. It's, you know, it's, it's magical stuff, impossible stuff. It, it must be wrong, okay? This does not follow the rules of science. And so the, the point of the EPR experiment is that this cannot happen. The, the predictions of quantum physics about how these, these uh, particles remain entangled must be wrong. And so he was certain that someday when the technology would advance enough that they could actually do this experiment, they would find, obviously, they would find that there can't be any spooky action in the distance. 
that the, the crazy results of, of that that game of the carney winning every time obviously that can't happen and so he concluded there's something seriously wrong with quantum physics this time i got you guys i'm pro i've proven it you've got to be wrong okay so this is this kind of reasoning is called reducto ad absurdum you show that something leads to absurd results and therefore it must be wrong uh anyone want to give another example of that kind of reasoning so uh, okay so how did it actually work out well it took a long time because when this paper was published the technology did not, did not exist to, to perform the epr experiment it took about 40 years until it could be done and by that time einstein was no longer around uh, but it's been performed many times since then and sometimes they've they've even gone distances up to 800 miles between the two particles to do this experiment to make it clear 800 miles obviously these particles cannot be affecting each other at 800 miles and certainly not faster than light and what they found is that the experimental results always agree exactly with the predictions of quantum physics quantum physics is right einstein was wrong so you know einstein said that if quantum physics were correct then the world would be crazy he was right the world is crazy so apparently einstein was wrong the universe really is spooky there really is action at a distance but you'll notice i put some question marks in parentheses because not everybody's ready to accept it myself included i'll talk about that more later so what have we learned about crazy ideas from from the examples in quantum physics well we've learned that no matter how crazy an idea sounds it could still be true because here's an example where obviously it's it can't possibly be that way that's nuts and yet it's been proven time and time again it's absolutely true so then does that mean every time that somebody proposes some crazy physics idea we physicists you just stop what we're doing and give serious consideration to that no 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 i get too many of these ideas people uh, people telling me oh i heard this i heard that i heard this and you go on the internet to just no end to these crazy ideas and what is wrong with taking time to look at those ideas well every crazy idea that proved to be correct was developed for a reason okay we talked about all the crazy ideas in quantum physics it wasn't just somebody saying hey how about this it was there were experimental results there were experiments that failed the the uh the black body radiation ultraviolet catastrophe the photoelectric effect the double slit experiment there were reasons experimental results showed we need a new theory we need a new explanation and they had to come up with theories which had to be crazy in order to explain the weird results that they got but so these results were not gratuitous whereas almost all of the, the crazy ideas i hear are just gratuitous there's no reason for them they're not based on on any any experimental catastrophe they're not based on some experimental findings it's just someone thought hey here's a cool idea and there's just zillions of these all over the place 
if I took the time, you know, and, and they're all junk, okay? If there were if there were any value to them, surely there would have been some motivation for them. They would have been tied to some experimental results. But they're they're you know, they're all junk and they're a waste of our time. And if physicists spent all their time exploring all the, the zillions of ideas that are being thrown out that you can find on the internet, we'd never get any work done. Okay, so it's true that just because an idea is crazy doesn't mean it shouldn't be taken seriously, but only if it's not a gratuitous idea. Okay, somebody said, hey, this is, here's a cool idea, but there's a real reason for it. Okay, so how do we explain what happened? And let's stick with our example with the carny and the coins. Well, let's take a look at this carny. Does he look familiar? Oh yeah, it's uh, it's George Burns. No, no, it's not George Burns. It's God, of course. The Car Let's take the idea. The carny is God. He's nature. He has control. He can do anything, right? Okay. So what's what's going on here? So God doesn't have to follow the laws of relativity. Okay, God can do anything, but then we have to ask, well, isn't it curious? God follows the rules of relativity in every single experiment that's ever been done, except for this one. What is happening here? What is, what kind of God makes these bizarre exceptions? We're gonna have these rules of nature that follow every time, except when, for this particular experiment, because I don't like that one or whatever, you know, it's. It's, it's not a very satisfying answer to say, well, it's that way because God made it so. It doesn't really leave us with, with uh, an answer. Well, let's take another idea. What's another way that, that God can make these results? Well, maybe God reads my friend's mind and see which hand he's gonna use to flip the coin and makes the coin land that way, okay? So, but even if God could do that, you know, my friend could change his mind last minute. And if God, the laws of relativity then there's not time to change the answer and so god can't change coin toss so again this doesn't give us an explanation saying god made it that way really doesn't explain anything you know it just leaves us with more questions about you know what is happening but maybe god's not reading my friend's mind maybe god is controlling his mind okay Maybe God can decide which, if my friend's going to use his right hand or his left hand. So in physics, we call it super determinism, where everything is determined, even everything we do. So maybe what this experiment is showing is that there is no such thing as free will. Kind of hard for us to accept that. Do you believe that you have free will and, and how could you test that belief? You know, we, we can get into all kinds of philosophical questions and again it's coming out of quantum physics you know well another idea is that maybe what we see is random really isn't random you know it's actually determined by quantum entanglement that all sorts of things are entangled and so there are really reasons things that look random there are actually entanglements going on which are deciding what happens um, Schrodinger called entanglement the characteristic trait of quantum physics. This is a very key feature of it. So maybe Einstein was right about God not throwing dice. There's, there's nothing is really random. There's, there's a reason for everything that happens. 
Well, another idea, and, and the way that it's usually used to explain the experiment is that things never really are far apart. The idea of things being at different places or far from each other is an illusion. They're really, every place is the same place. They're like every point in the universe is somehow connected to every other point. So all points are close to each other. So we say, well, you know, the, the two entangled particles get far apart. Maybe that's an illusion and they're still close together. So this, this is called a, a non-local theory. And as strange as it sounds, somehow it's become the standard view of how to explain the EPR paradox. Uh, it's been said the behavior of entangled particles is almost obscenely non-local. Not sure how obscenity got into this, but um, it seems there's some kind of connection with every other place. And maybe is this connection somehow connected, related to human consciousness? You know, some something strange going on there. Um, that kind of ties in with the Copenhagen interpretation. This is our knowledge causes wave function to collapse. Maybe our knowledge also explains quantum entanglement. I, I don't know. There's all sorts of weird ideas going on out there. And we can't really disprove any of them. And a lot of physicists will hold on to these views. Do you believe you have a direct connection to events or people far away? And how would you test that? Another uh, so-called explanation is to say particles are actually going backwards in time. They're kind of like living backwards like Merlin or Benjamin Buttons. So that their past is our future. So the reason the way, the reason that the particles know what choices will be made is because in their frame of reference where time goes in the opposite direction, th those things have already happened. Again, it sounds like a silly idea, but um, many physicists subscribe to this, including this guy who's got a Nobel Prize. Um, remember, this is the same guy who drew diagrams where arrows were going against time for virtual particles. So maybe time goes both ways or something. I, I'm not sure what to make of this. And if listening to Feynman doesn't convince you, we could look at the words of a real expert on the subject. Uh, I'll let you read this and try to make sense of it. But the, the, the bottom line is you ain't going nowhere because you've already been there. And this is a quote, of course, from the eminent physicist, Frank Zappa. So this was, uh, this was the connections between Zappa and physics were pointed out to be my, the, um, another quote from Frank Zappa, without deviation from the norm, progress is not possible. And that's certainly true of quantum physics. Uh, these connections were pointed out to me by my good friend, Jerry Fialka, who for many years was uh, Zappa's uh, right-hand man, took care of all sorts of business for him. And he gave me some more ideas uh, where Zappa comes into science. Uh, there's an acne causing bacteria, which was named after Zappa because, because of uh, its unconventional behavior and its reference to uh, a Zappa song. Another connection is uh, a theoretical nuclear physicist, Tim Dodd. Zappa tried to turn him into a rock star. And speaking of physicists turning into rock stars, 
there is an example, a, a true life example, who really did become uh, a physicist who was a rock star and became a physicist. Uh, Brian May, who played lead guitar in Queen, after the band broke up, he got a PhD in physics and he's now quite well known in the world of astrophysics. Okay, let me tell you about my encounter with Nobel laureate Richard Feynman. Uh, back in 1975, I was a senior at Harvey Mudd, uh, an undergraduate, and we had a monthly uh, physics seminar where some visiting professor would come and, and give a talk. So it was announced that Professor Feynman was going to come, come and be our, our speaker. He was certainly the most prestigious of, of any speaker we had had. So he was going to you know, come across town from Pasadena to Claremont. But you know, since he was Feynman and he could call the shots, instead of coming with a prepared lecture, he announced that he was just going to answer questions. He would just get up there and the audience could pose questions to him. So when this news got out, all the physics students started working very hard, take up really good in questions to impress, impress this Nobel laureate, you know. All the physics students, except for me, I didn't bother. So I didn't come prepared. I figured oh, I'll just see what happens, you know. So the, um, uh, the moderator got up to introduce uh, Professor Feynman. Before he did, he, he told a lot of stories. There are all kinds of anecdotes about, you know, funny things that, that Feynman has done. And one of the stories he told Feynman, he could never really take a vacation from physics. There was one time he was on vacation going on a cruise ship and he spent most of the trip, you know, hunting around trying to find a yardstick so he could measure the speed of the cruise ship. You know, he just could never get away from that. Anyway, then uh, the moderator started polling the audience for questions to ask Professor Feynman. And the first question that one of the students had worked so hard to think up a really good question, Professor Feynman, what direction do you think physics will take now with the recent discovery of the psi particle? And the great man answered, oh, north by northwest. Next question. He didn't like that question. Okay, so the next question came up. What role do you see epistemology? That's a branch of, of, um, of uh, philosophy. You see epistemology playing in the development of physics. Look, I'm a physicist, not a philosopher. Next question. Okay, well, I had not come prepared, but at that moment, I was suddenly inspired. My hand shot up and the moderator saw me and called on me. And I asked my question, how do you measure the speed of a ship with a yardstick? And Feynman liked my question. Finally, a question he could dig his teeth into. And he explained how he was using the yardstick with triangulation. He was gonna measure the angle of the weight, the weight behind the ship. And then knowing the viscosity of water, he was gonna figure out, he could figure out the speed of the ship. So that was how I impressed Richard Feynman with my sensible question for him. So, you know, the question comes up, quantum physics, it seems to be so illogical with these, these mysteries. How can it be so, you know, so contrary to logic? And maybe the answer is, well, we're using human logic. Maybe the universe uses a different kind of logic. There's a natural logic that's different from human logic. You know, maybe that's why we don't, it doesn't make sense to us. Or maybe, Maybe the universe is using strategy 
kind of like, you know, the way that we play chess, you know, we're thinking hypothetically, if he moves here, then I'll move there and do that. You know, like also for military plans, business plans, even personal relationships, you know, if I say this, she'll say that, and, you know, be ready. Maybe the universe is strategizing with us, kind of, kind of challenging us to, to some kind of game or something. Or maybe the universe is actually playing a trick on us, you know? Um, I mean, after all, can you imagine if you were the universe? I mean, what could be more fun than tormenting a bunch of logical physicists with illogical physics? You know, I'm Charles Darwin seemed to think so. I, but Einstein couldn't believe that. So maybe the universe is laughing at us. Ha ha, look, what I, look how I fooled them with these crazy, crazy quantum effects going on. Do you believe the, the universe is intentionally deceptive or even malicious about it? How could you test that? Okay, so to wrap it all up, we've been hearing all these crazy ideas I've been throwing out, but these are not ideas coming from, you know, nutcases, or maybe they are. They're coming from logical, rational, respected, sometimes Nobel Prize winning scientists not nutcases, or, or maybe that's the same thing, who knows. But why are they coming up with uh, these ideas and following these crazy ideas? These are scientists, damn it. Well, the, the answer is that they're desperate because they're trying to explain what quantum physics means. And there's no explanation that isn't crazy. There's, you know, it's like this, you know, Einstein was right, the world is crazy if quantum physics is right. Every explanation that makes any kind of sense has been proven to be wrong. Um, so we can prove quantum physics is true. There's no doubt about that, but we can't find any sensible explanation behind it. So does everyone understand? Well, let's see what some physicists say about that. If you're not completely confused by quantum physics, you, you must not have understood it. Those who are not shocked when they first come across quantum physics cannot possibly have understood it. And Richard Feynman again, it is safe to say that nobody understands quantum physics. And of course he is including himself. So in conclusion, if I've completely confused you, if you haven't understood anything that I have been explaining to you today, congratulations, you passed the class. Thank you, thank you, okay. So we'll have some, uh, we can have some final questions, limit them, and then maybe uh, maybe take another uh, brief break and, and I have a bonus round for those who are interested. Uh, you wanna have some final questions? Um, yes. Well, does the wave function always come with 50-50% or because I can live with like... Oh, no, I'm just trying to keep things simple. Oh, okay. So It could be any percent. The percents can be changing. There can be a lot more choices. I'm just trying to keep it all simple. I, that, I, I didn't want the math to get any more complicated than, you know, 50% plus 50% equals 100%. But it, it could be anything, yeah. Yeah, okay. Right, right. Well... Let's see. I can't see what time it is. Uh, I guess I haven't been. I guess I've only been talking a half hour. Um, so I have a oh, one yes, question. Another question. Yeah. 
uh, is my voice getting through? Okay. So um, a question is, is there such thing in physics as a quantum of minimum time, minimum quantum of space? Is there, is there a, a unit of space that cannot be divided any further or a unit of time that cannot be divided any further? There isn't a minimum, but there is an... talk about smaller amounts than that so um, Planck time Planck space Planck distance is that um yeah i'm not sure if Planck time meets that i mean Planck time is in Planck space certainly they're so small that they must be you know within that limit but usually the limit is much bigger in terms of the, the heisenberg uncertainty principle will set a limit on how accurately you can define something and so it really doesn't make sense to define things more accurately than than they can then there can be this fundamental uncertainty to them and it's not an absolute value again it depends on the circumstances well here i'll just throw up um one of these um, days i'm gonna I, give uh, some other lectures I, uh, yes. hello yes um, I was just wondering, is there like uh, a movie or some kind of media that you have seen that you think kind of utilize quantum physics almost unknowingly? Like some of these principles, unknowingly. like unknowingly uh, kind of adopted some of these like ideas of like the, the randomness and the, uh, I don't know, just like <laughs> some of the principles of quantum physics. Do you think they're like I, I just feel like it's one of those things that you accidentally kind of stumble into sometimes when you're writing well yeah i guess you know th there are any number of cases where um people sort of come up with these ideas kind of intuitively and they kind of match with uh ideas from quantum physics i can't think of any specific examples there was a movie uh, called uh, what the bleep do we know it was also called uh, Down the Rabbit Hole, which was trying to explain these ideas, but I didn't really like it, so I'm not mm -hmm. recommending it. Um, I have a question. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, what happened to the wave function of the observer himself or herself to decide the fate of the cat? Does that play any role? Oh, the wave function of the observer. Right, you didn't bring that all the uh, wave function of the universe and all that, you know, what I've heard. Well, I guess that would be a, a different problem, really, to look at the wave function of the observer. I'm not sure how that would, I don't know, it just seems to make things even another level of complexity. So I didn't. Yeah, I mean, deciding the fate of the cat, you know, for one observer, maybe it is the dead, it is a wave function together and for the other observer maybe his wave function is that is is live i mean somebody has looked at it or how does it go it's very complicated obviously well you do have in the the many worlds interpretation you do have a wave function that includes one of me seeing a dead cat and one of me seeing a live cat and those are entangled together so you do, you do have that I see. I had another question. By the way, my name is Vinod Mengle. Somebody asked me to speak up my name. The other one was with this entanglement. When you say, you know, each point in the universe is maybe connected uh, to some other point. Have, have you also looked at, you know, that there may be higher dimensions with the fourth, fifth, sixth, whatever dimensions, maybe bringing two points which are far apart in our universe 
much, well, much closer. Right. <laughs> the thing about higher spatial dimensions is that there's no evidence that they exist. And in fact, uh, you know, astronomers have tried to measure the curvature of space in higher time dimensions. And they can't measure it. It's too small to measure, suggesting it, it doesn't exist. Now, string theory I right. think, says there has to be, uh, I forget, is it 11 dimensions? Right. But again, there's no evidence for it. So maybe that comes into it. I, I don't know. But the, the evidence, there's not really any evidence for that view. But does it? I mean, I know you never brought super string theory into or membrane theory and stuff, which I've just been reading at you know yeah. popular science level. But they do explain all of the particles, right? At least, and their quantum behavior yeah, too, or how is it? I don't know. I, I don't really get into string theory and particle theory much. And it it uh, string theory, as I understand it, it you know there's there's nothing. There's no evidence to back it. So. It could be just all, all uh, irrelevant, you know. So I don't, I don't take it too seriously. I, I suppose one day it'll be shown to be, it might maybe it'll be shown to be true, but until then, I'm not, I'm not taking it seriously. All right, thank you, uh, Professor McKeegan. Go ahead. Oh, Kevin, thank you. Can, can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Okay, great. Hey, thanks a lot for a very entertaining and. and enjoyable presentation. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was wondering if you could say a few words um, about quantum computing, because my understanding is people are taking this very seriously. They're investing money. Important companies are researching this. And I'm wondering, you know, how, do you, how, how, how does one design something based on these quantum principles and what kind of uh, logic or questions might be addressed by a quantum computer? Yeah. Um... Well, you know, I think that's a, a topic that's way beyond the, uh, the level of this talk. This talk is meant to be, you know, at a, 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 a lay human's uh, level. So yeah, I didn't go into that and I don't know a lot about it. So. Yeah, I don't know a lot about it either, but apparently people have been convinced to put money behind it. So right. there, must, <laughs> there must have been some right. argument. There, there does seem to be something to it. But uh, I'm, I, uh, I, I think it goes way beyond uh, this audience. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, uh, I can comment a little bit because last year we had uh, two events on quantum computer. Uh, basically, Professor McKeegan is basically uh, using quantum mechanics and they uh, designed the gate. You know, uh, the solid state, they have the conventional gate, but they use quantum mechanics uh, to create uh, the end or gate and the several gates, and with those gates, it put the foundation of the, the chips uh, of the computing. Uh, so that's basically, they use the quantum mechanics uh, to put the fundamental end gate, or gate, nor gate, and several other gates. Uh, with those gates, then you can design computers. Uh, that, that, that's the foundation of it. I, I will follow you the link of the two events uh, last year we have with AIW Los Angeles, that's bigger section. Okay, thanks. Okay. Uh, Paula, go ahead. Paula, I think you have a question. Yes, thank you. I'm um, just wondering um, 
if the findings of the Webb telescope, and I know it's early, it's only been going for a couple of months, but if it is having any impact on our understanding or approach to quantum physics. I, in the, I in the time space that. element. I have not heard anything that effect. I haven't really been keeping on, on up on that. You know, it's it's pretty much out, outside of my my field, which is lasers. Uh, but from what I hear about the uh, the findings of the Webb Telescope, it has it's been having a big effect on cosmology and the Big Bang theory. But I haven't heard anything about it impacting quantum physics. And and usually, you know, quantum physics and cosmology are, are pretty much in different domains. Cosmology is dealing with very big stuff and quantum physics dealing with very small stuff. Uh, except, of course, when you're talking about, you know, the Big Bang, which at its beginning was very small. So, but I, I uh, so there might be some connection there, but I, I'm not aware of it myself. Well, okay, I've also put up uh, sometime in the future, I'm gonna be talking on uh, more on my field, which is lasers. And I have uh, two lectures for a total of a couple hours, including a demo. So we'll schedule that for sometime in the not too distant future. And um, yes, yes, a question. Uh, yeah, I was wondering about uh, what you, when you mentioned uh, buckyballs. Uh, yes, that was balls. fascinating because you wouldn't think they would have anything to do with the wave, right? Because they're not even photons, were they? They were like carbon. Or oh no, they're they're uh, they're made of matter. They're made of carbon, but as uh, as we know, everything is a wave. Even things with mass. This was shown by uh, what's his name, De Broglie, that um, that mass things, particles with mass are also waves, and that's been demonstrated for for buckyballs and even bigger things, things up to a couple couple thousand atoms and huge molecules. Uh, where, where could you say I could find out more about that? What? What, what, what? Would you have any uh, source of information or something to find out a little more about that? Oh, I don't know offhand, uh, but you know, we could search search the internet sure and find something. And well, one more question. Yes. Uh, this is Vinod Mengle again. You you said the word consciousness, and you said if there are conscious, you know, about Schrodinger cat again or some other experiments, that actually gets into the realm of what is consciousness, right? I mean, there are all oh, kinds wow. of things. I mean, human beings are conscious, or dogs, or whatever, ants, bacteria. I mean, it goes into some very weird questions. Yes, and consciousness is, you know, one of the most difficult things that that science could could tackle. Personally, I can't understand how consciousness works at all. Uh, there's a, a renowned scientist, uh, Sir Roger Penrose, who has um, done a lot on the subject, written books on the, the physics of consciousness. But I understand there's a lot of controversy over that. A lot of yeah, yeah, I've read that his book. Yeah. Now, also because you know, uh, it looks looks like by physicists saying that oh yeah, if there is a conscious observer then only, you know, it can be decided. It looks like you're sidetracking the real answer. Maybe like people used to say there is God. And, you know, because of God, you know, ellipsis happened. 
uh, eclipses happen. So is it like just yet another word you're using? A physicist are using to say, okay, if you're a conscious observer, you know, this is the way you interact, etc. Or meaning, is it just a, uh, just a sidewise answer or something like that, you know? Because there could be AI computers observing the whole phenomena, right? Are they conscious? Yeah, they're, all, they're all kinds of uh, <laughs> right. what it could mean, but I'm, I, I'm not really the one to ask about that. Okay, okay. Well, let's see. Uh, now for the bonus track, I called it, a number of people have asked me, what are my own beliefs? You know, I've presented, I've tried to cover, you know, all the views of major physicists in here. And people ask me, well, what about me? What do I believe? So I put together a short uh, presentation, uh, like uh, 20 minutes or so, my own views. And I'm wondering if we should take a break and then go into that. Or uh, let's see, I started at 2.30. I wonder if I should just go ahead and finish that. Uh, how do people feel? Do you want a break first or five minute break? Five minute, okay, five minute break and then we'll have the bonus round. Oh, that'll give us time to load up. It's in a different file too. Okay, so in five minutes for those who are interested in the, the bonus round. Okay, ready to start? Okay, welcome to the bonus round or bonus track. So you just heard about philosophical mysteries of quantum physics where we presented, I presented all sorts of interesting questions. And now we have the answer key. What are the answers to the mysteries? You didn't know there were answers, right? Well, of course, these are my answers. These are the answers according to me because people have asked me, um, you know, you, you, I'm sure you got some hints of my own beliefs, but now I'll really go into them. And one question is, uh, and every, everything I have in red here is new, everything in black you, you've already seen in the original lecture, just to distinguish. So why didn't I include this in my original lecture? Well, one reason is that lecture was supposed to be, uh, for the most part, objective and unbiased. Okay, so I was trying to give equal time for all the views and not pushing too strongly on my own personal views. It, anyway, views held by physicists, uh, meaning real physicists or, and not um, crackpots or, or real physicists who are crackpots or whatever. And also I wanted to limit it to the major views, the mainstream views. And uh, some of my own views that I subscribe to are actually a bit obscure and not very popular even among physicists. So even to include those would have already been showing my personal bias to include them along with the major views. And also most people seem to think that unsolved mysteries are more interesting than solved mysteries. And of course they're wrong as I will show. Uh, and also I was, in my lecture, I was trying to appeal, especially 
a lot of people in my audience that get attracted to this talk are people with kind of far out woo woo views. And um, this, this may make you want not want to hear. This is maybe very offensive to a, a lot of my listeners. Uh, but I don't subscribe to any kind of kind of views that are out there spooky, mystic, uh, religious, intuitive, any of these other views. I, I pretty much just stick to things that are as logical as possible. Even though those views could be enabled by other physicists views. So, so, you know, it depends who you talk to. If you talk to other physicists, you might be much happier with their, with their enabling your views, but I don't go for that stuff uh, personally. And many people find that rejection of those views boring, but again, they're wrong, okay? I can say that because this talk is about my own opinions. So it's far more fascinating to look at things logically. So um, just a reminder, we talked about the experiment where we look at single photons and which, uh, which slit did they go through? Did the photon go through one slit or both slits? And I suggested that this is saying that the photon can only, can never go through both slits. And in my view, that's the end. Absolutely, it means a photon does not go through both slits. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, according to me, anyway. And then looking at the uh, reminder again about the experiment where we see the wave effect and just reminding these slides are kind of in there for people who haven't seen the, uh, the main lecture recently, but you just saw it a couple hours ago. And we come to the question, can a photon go through both slits? Well, I can understand why someone might think that at first. It sounds very logical according to the, the initial results that you get this wave, this wave pattern formed by, by photons. So I can certainly sympathize with someone who thinks, oh yeah, a photon must, must go through both slits. But when we do the experiment number one, where we try to test that, we find out that conclusion is wrong. So, you know, many physicists have claimed, I've heard this claim that a photon can go through both slits, including some very prominent ones. But according to me, they're just wrong. That's just not right. You know, the experiments determine what is true. You can, you can say what you think is logical and maybe that's useful, but in this case, these logical conclusions are just proven to be wrong. The bottom line is the experiments say that it doesn't happen. A photon never goes through two slits. Now, maybe what they're thinking of is virtual photons, okay? This Feynman diagram that I showed, the, the, uh, the squiggly line in the, in the middle is a virtual photon. And maybe a virtual photon can, can go through both slits but remember, virtual means it's not real, okay? Like virtual reality is not reality. So a virtual photon is not really a photon. So that doesn't count. So the question came up, well, is light a wave or a particle? We say duality, complementarity. 
I think the answer is that light cannot be either a wave or a particle. Okay, if light were a wave, it would never act like a particle because waves never act like particles and particles never behave like waves. So wave is not either a wave or a particle. So that whole idea is wrong, according to me. And when is it like a wave and when is it like a particle? Uh, do we influence it? The observer influences it? Well, this is just, in my view, this is just speculation that is not supported. There's just not any enough evidence to support such an extraordinary claim that we're influencing the, the, uh, the way that, that nature behaves. And remember that famous quote from Spider-Man where he said extraordinary power, no, 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 that famous quote from Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So I don't think this view is worth taking seriously that, that the observer is influencing the laws of nature. Okay, but if light isn't a wave or a particle, then what is it? Well, it's a wave and a particle. Okay, something that's a wave and a particle can behave as a wave and can behave as a particle because it's both. Or it could be, of course, multiple particles. You could have more than one photon. And this leads us to uh, a view that I didn't talk about in the main lecture because it turns out it's not popular for some reason. That's the pilot wave interpretation. This was first proposed by Louis de Broglie. So it started out, you know, proposed by someone very prominent. And basically it says this, that light always consists of a wave and a photon, one or more photons. They're both present all the time. And it's a pilot wave because the wave is piloting or guiding the photons. So the wave is there and the photons are there and the wave guides the photons. So the photon did not go through, the photon only went through one slit, but the photon was being piloted by a wave that went through both slits. So the wave knows what happens going through both slits and it's directing the photon. So the photon doesn't have to go through both slits in order to be affected by the presence of the other slit because the pilot wave did that. Now we can only measure light by detecting the photons. Whenever we make a, a measurement of light, we're always measuring photons. We never measure the wave itself. The wave itself is not directly detectable. The only things that we learn, know about the wave are what we infer by detecting the particles that it, that it piloted. And here I'm talking just about a quantum of light about photons, but of course this could apply to any kind of quantum particles. Well, I think this is a great view because it resolves the mystery of how do single photons produce this wave interference pattern? Well, a wave was driving them. So that's how they did it. And this whole wave particle duality pretty much goes away. You know, you have waves and particles. That's end of story. So I think this is a great view, which deserves to be much more popular than it is. So, how do we know that light is a wave and a photon? Well, we look at, imagine a photon goes through one of the slits and lands at one spot. Um, and so we get a, a quantized detection, but we're also getting the wave interference, which is determining 
where the photon goes, which is guiding or piloting the wave. So there's also a theory of pilot waves, which was introduced along with this interpretation, originally by uh, de Broglie. And it goes beyond just this interpretation to actually have equations that predict exactly what the pilot wave does. Uh, now, this was started by de Broglie, David uh, Bone, or Bohm, I think I misspelled that, expanded that many years later. And it's based on a modified Schrodinger wave equation. He took that and has another equation that looks similar, but it describes the, uh, the wave. It uses hidden variables. So there are photon properties we cannot know because that would violate quantum uncertainty, things like which slit did it know, go through. But they exist. These, quant these hidden variables still exist, even though we can't know what they are. So for example, uh, another quantum uncertainty is exactly where in the slit did the photon go? Did it go in the middle? Did it go off to one side? These are, are hidden variables that, that we can't know, and yet they affect the final result. So here's some actual calculations that were done using the pilot wave theory of the double slit experiment. And here now it's considering a photon that lands anywhere within the width of the slit. So a photon that, that goes through this side of the slit heads off that way, and it shows the photons travel these these different paths, and you'll notice they've got all kinds of kinks in here, which all add up to in getting these this wave pattern. We've got these alternating regions of high intensity, low intensity, high intensity, low intensity, etc., which gives us the wave pattern. And uh, the hidden variable here is, is the position. Where does the photon enter? And that determines where it's going to end up. So it's a deterministic theory. A given photon that, land, that enters the slit at a given point, we know, or we don't know because we don't know where it enters, but we can calculate uh, where it would land, assuming it did there. So those show the paths. Now, you might object, well, gee, these lines are bent. They have kinks in them. How can that be? Well, look, diffraction causes light to bend. We know that. We know that light bends all the time. So why, why not bend here? You know, since uh, bending light paths is, is a characteristic of diffraction. So I don't have a problem with that. And of course, again, that applies to any kind of quantum particle. Well, a lot of objections have been raised to this theory. Okay, I won't go through them. They get too technical, too hard to understand. And it leads to them being unpopular. In fact, it was so unpopular, De Broglie was really ridiculed for this theory. They thought. And he was ridiculed so, so much that he caved into peer pressure and he dropped it. He just dropped this, this, this theory and it was picked up many years later by David Bohm. But still being ridiculed, still being attacked. And you know these attacks, there must be some basis to them. But these objections, I mean, couldn't these be fixed if people would work on this theory and figure out what are the objections and work on fixing those, there's probably, you know, they should be able to come up with something. And in any case, they could still accept the concept of, of the interpretation of there being a wave and a particle clears up these quantum mysteries uh, quite a bit, even if we reject the details of, of the theory that, that goes along with it. So this interpretation has just gotten a bad rap that I think 
uh, it deserves not to have. And there should be a lot of scientists studying this interpretation, studying the theory, trying to figure out how to make it work and give us something that is not so mysterious. So I talked about the delayed choice experiments. Um, you know, does the, whether the beam splitter is there, does the photon reflect off of one or both mirrors? Well, no, the beam, putting in the beam splitter doesn't actually change anything. We aren't changing the past because whether the beam splitter is, is there or not, the wave always reflects off both mirrors and the photon already reflects off one of the mirrors. That's always true and nothing has changed by our putting the beam splitter in there. Uh, but the wave doesn't choose how to pilot the photon until it gets to the beam splitter. And the beam splitter affects the wave and sort of affects how the wave guides the photon. And the idea that light had to choose, that's just BS. So the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, it's suggesting that precise answers don't exist or maybe precise answers do exist, but we can't know them. We can only know the probabilities, but we can't know the answer for any particular case. So this is not necessarily, you know, although we know the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is true, it's not necessarily saying that precise answers don't exist and there's not a precise reality. God does not throw dice. Well, maybe not. Maybe random events are not actually random. They can't just, we just can't predict them, but there's something causing them. I don't know. And maybe quantum uncertainty holds the key to the existence of our free will. We don't see any evidence that free will is random that, that I know. So I, I wouldn't take this idea seriously. Not everyone's happy about, about uh, the way quantum physics went. Well, I think they should be very happy about it because look at the success of this. Shorty was sorry he had anything to do with quantum physics. Yet look at how better our lives are because of what Schrodinger did. Uh, maybe, you know, mutually exclusive realities exist. Again, there's, this is an extraordinary claim and there's not extraordinary evidence to back it up. Uh, the collapse of the wave function, it's, you know, the, the collapse of the wave function is beyond known science, which is true. And that means it's unjustified to think that this shows anything, to show that the wave function is fully describing reality. That was the whole point of the CAT experiment, experiment to show that the collapse of the wave function is not describing reality. It's only giving us probabilistic answers. It's not giving us the answer to any specific case. Maybe our consciousness creates reality. Okay. Oh, if a tree falls in the forest, no one hears it. Does it make a sound? Depends on how you define sound. Is sound the motion of air molecules or is it, is it what someone hears in their ear? Okay. That's a simple answer. Uh, if a cat dies and no one hears it or sees it, is it dead? Yes, it's dead. If it died, doesn't, no one needs to see it. Is the, we now know the moon is not there when nobody looks. Well, speak for yourself. I don't believe that. Who, who, um, you know, who qualifies to look at it? Good question. You know, Einstein was a very good point on that. And Wigner's claim here about the importance of consciousness. Again, it's too extraordinary a claim, not backed up. 
and these crazy cartoons he made. Again, it's extraordinary claims, not, not supported. When is the cat's fate resolved? It's resolved, as uh, someone pointed out, it's resolved when the Geiger counter absorbs the photon that's emitted. That's when it's resolved. There was no consciousness needed. It doesn't matter whether we know if the cat's alive or not. When the, when the detector, uh, when the Geiger counter went off, we knew at that point the cat, well, we didn't know, but at that point it was decided whether the cat would, would be alive or dead. And um, that's, you know, when it happens and when life function ceases, that's when the cat dies. Not when we open the box, okay? If the cat's dead when we open the box, that means it was already dead before we opened it. And when does it occur? Uh, see above when we look in the box? No. So again, these are, these are extraordinary claims in my view. And uh, the, the, the Copenhagen interpretation, yes, something is rotten in Denmark. I know Niels Bohr was brilliant, great scientist. All of his followers of this, great scientists, but they were just wrong about this. This Copenhagen interpretation was just dumb. Um, let's see. And we changed, okay, we do, did, did, making a detection does have to change things in order to satisfy the uncertainty principle, which we know is true, but it's not, it has nothing to do with our knowing about them. It's just the detectors themselves. When a photon hits our eye and is absorbing our eye, when it hits a camera and is absorbing the camera or a Geiger counter, that's the moment when, uh, when a change is made. Obviously, the photon changes when it's detected. So nothing mysterious about that. Nothing to do with our consciousness or our knowledge. Now, I said uh, that Bell showed that there can't be any hidden variables. I was giving an oversimplified view Actually, what it proves is that there can't be any hidden variables when it's applied to the experimental results that were obtained from the EPR experiments. However, maybe it's not being applied correctly. A few people have suggested that, that the theorem, okay, the theorem I believe is correct. The experimental results, they show what they show, but maybe it's not being applied quite right. And there are some papers I've seen, some presentations I've seen, which apply information theory that support this view. And I don't know enough to tell if they're right, but maybe they are. What is really out there, you know, is it impossible that there's a reality? Again, this is an extraordinary claim, not supported. And so is this, the many worlds interpretation you know, I can't prove it's wrong, but there's no reason to believe this. There's nothing backing it up. And I think what this shows is that no matter how brilliant someone is, I'm not gonna say Stephen Hawking isn't brilliant, but that doesn't mean that everything he says is right. He could be wrong. We're all capable of being wrong. And this is an example. Okay, the EPR experiment here was just reminding us what it was about and spooky action at a distance. So, it's been claimed many, many times that Einstein was wrong. The universe really is spooky. But, you know, I believe that if Einstein had lived long enough to see the experimental results, he would have figured out an explanation. 
okay, I have faith. I'm sure he would have dedicated himself to showing that the experimental results did not prove that the universe is spooky. And if he would have done it, everyone would have listened to him, okay? People who do this today are considered probably crackpots and ignored. If Einstein had done it, everyone would have listened. And probably uh, the mystery would have been solved somehow. Maybe others have found the explanation, but people just aren't listening to them. Um, another idea that is just not supported by evidence, not supported by, not enough evidence to support it. The randomness, well, it's kind of reasonable. I guess I could believe this maybe. The non-local theory that everything is, that distance is an illusion, again, it's just, I, I, I just don't see that there's evidence to support a crazy idea like this. And of course this, of course this one, you knew that. Um, again, showing even a brilliant person can be wrong about something, this idea of things going backwards in time, like their, their entire existence. Uh, this quantum logic again, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It's just, these are, these are, these ideas, you know, quantum, quantum physics shows us crazy ideas, but it has, it has experimental evidence to back it up. These ideas, they're not backed up and they're crazy. Um, so every explanation that makes any kind of sense has been proven to be wrong. And we can't find a sensible explanation for it. But I think that we could somehow, I still believe that we could if, you know, we if we discarded all the ideas that, are, that aren't supported. You know, there, there are so many crazy ideas floating around that there really isn't evidence to back up. So stop being distracted by all those ideas and focus on the ideas like the pilot wave interpretation that show promise of, of making sense and try harder to make sense out of, out of that or other similar ideas. I believe that we could make progress. And that concludes my own opinions, my own answers to the mysteries, the philosophical mysteries of quantum physics. Thank you very much. Any uh, final questions? Back, uh, towards the beginning, there was this little clip of uh, red, uh, not, in, not in your section, it was actually in the, in the original lecture, part one. Uh, there was like a little clip of a, of a like red dust-like wave pattern thing. Oh, yeah, right. That was, exactly? I'm not sure exactly what that is, but oh. there, there's something, you know, because we're not making measurements out there, so we can't make any claims about what's there. There's something that's wavy <laughs> going through there. We're not sure quite what, and so that's just represented by showing some kind of wavy thing. Okay, so and that could fit pretty well with the pilot wave. Uh, yeah, certainly the pilot wave interpretation could be consistent with that. But th that was that was an experiment that happened, or was it just a simulation? Well, it was a simulation of experiments that have happened, except that in an experiment we don't we can't observe those waves. We cannot observe waves, quantum waves directly. The waves in the Schrodinger wave. Uh, equation, the the waves in light, we can't actually see those. We infer they're, they're there because we detect photons. We can only detect photons 
and then try to figure out what, what the waves are based on that. Yeah, right. So it's like if something is being pushed around by an invisible ghost, we can't see the ghost. We can tell, think, tell a lot about the ghost by seeing how it pushes things around, you know? Or like the invisible man is walking around. We can't see him, but we see a chair move. We see things happening. Oh, we can learn things about the invisible man by seeing the effect that he has on, on other things. So the same thing with the pilot wave. We can learn about the wave by looking at, at the, the photons that, that it moves. So the, the only experimental results that are actually shown in those simulations are the little red dots that appear on the screen. Everything else is just, you know, trying to get across the idea that something is, is waving through there to produce that. And also uh, in the double slit experiments uh, with the single photons, uh, so we know there was a separation not just laterally but vertically could that have just been a result of imperfection in the experiment or was there some oh well again there's random motion you know mm. now most of the effect is you know the, the pattern occurs horizontally and you could do this with holes instead of slits it just makes it more complicated because now you've got diffraction of different dimensions it's simpler if you use slits and then we kind of don't pay attention to what's going on vertically vertically things are kind of uniform more or less so uh, having the, having the, it's simpler if we just have if we only look at have to look at the horizontal variations. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just like a follow up to my earlier question, where could I read more about um, the topic of you know infinitesimal time and infinitesimal space? You said there's a probabilistic oh. way of interpreting or understanding those things. What what topics could I look up or um, read? Well, I would read more about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Okay. Really. I think that's what really limits space. Uh, Heisenberg himself wrote a number of books. I, I'm not sure to, where to learn about things like the Planck length and time. Uh, a lot of scientists don't take those things seriously. It's, it's not clear that there's any real significance to the Planck and the Planck time. But the Heisenberg uncertainty principle definitely is, is relevant. That's, that's an absolute truth. Thanks. Any question? Uh, Online folks and uh, you people here. Uh, let me see if no more questions. So, okay, it that, doesn't look. Go ahead. Um, I don't know if you got time for this, but uh, I had my own um, interaction with uh, Professor Feynman, and he actually asked me a question. Wow. He was trying to understand simple explanations for just about everything. And I was studying compound semiconductors and um, a mutual um, acquaintance introduced me to him and he wanted me to explain why gallium arsenide devices were had 
higher electron mobility than silicon. What fundamentally is it? And I had to admit that, that even though I was studying the topic, I couldn't really explain it in a simple fashion. I don't suppose you could take a stab at that. Well, I'm guessing it has something to do with um, the fact that gallium arsenide, I think, has an indirect band gap. It's a Fermi level. When you put the two bands together, yeah. the Fermi level changed. Does that change the diffusion time? Yeah, uh, and I gave him a words kind of like that, but it wasn't um, what he was looking for. You know, lay human explanation for fundamentally what's going on. And, uh, and you know, I, I did not satisfy Professor Feynman. Oh. Well, the fact that he even asked you a question, I'm impressed by that. Yeah, the solid well, I state. Think, I think our, our mutual acquaintance who was studying at Caltech was probably trying to get points with Dr. Yes. Yeah, I have a question, please. Uh, so in the double slit experiment, if the, the location of the photon in the slit is a hidden variable that affects the deviation afterwards, uh, and 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 you know helps determine the trajectory. What is the need for uh, the hypothesis of the pilot wave then? Like, couldn't it just be a particle moving through the slit and its location deter completely determine its trajectory along with the deviation uh, of the light? Well, yeah, this, this right. Picture. Without, without wave interference, there's no reason why you would get this, these strange kinds of uh, kinks in the pattern, okay? And there, there's no explanation why you would get these, these whoops, alternating regions of, uh, you know, dark and light regions. You get a lot of photons here, very few photons here, getting that wave pattern. Uh, if, if you didn't, introduce a pilot wave, there'd be no reason to think that you get that. Not only do you get light and dark patterns, but the light and dark patterns exactly follow, they're in positions and intensities that exactly follow the wave theory. So we need a theory that includes wave, includes a wave in it to explain why this happens. If, if you would try to do that without the wave, you just, um, there's no reason to expect it to work. So you're saying the wave is what's bending the uh, the photons' paths in those various ways. Right. Okay. Right. So yeah, you you can see these photons are they're they're traveling kind of strange paths, right? Why right. are they doing have these kinks in here, and why do they end up like that? And the answer is that there is there is a pilot wave that goes through both slit, which obeys mm -hmm. the, the laws for wave interference, and it makes the photons do that. Okay, and this is a On computer. Average. This is a computer simulation that right. that shows that right. if you have these right. waves it's going, following, it's yeah. taking the equations for uh, pilot wave theory and using those as a simulation in a computer simulation. 
and it shows there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. It's very deterministic. If a photon comes in there, it ends up there. There, it ends up there. You, there there's no crossing. The lines don't cross. Right. And there's nothing random about it. Oh, that's fascinating. A water wave? Uh, well, yeah, water, right. I showed a picture of this right here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a water wave is really composed of particles, right? Uh, well, particles. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what is what is a quantum particle in a water wave. That's kind of fucked up. So, water waves you can't really analyze it quantum particles. No, no, not quantum particles. I mean, I. I can get the same behavior with just regular classical mechanics, right? Right. So, so the need really to introduce new mechanics to get to to explain such a behavior. Well, because we know that when you're doing this, say, with light, that we can, we can detect when, if we do this experiment, the double slit experiment with light, we know that we detect individual photons. And we can do an experiment where the photons are coming in one at a time. And we know the photons go through one slit or the other. And there's no explanation for why they should come up, why they should land in a pattern that follows the, the wave equations. So we, we need an explanation for that. I mean, if you don't care about measuring individual photons, you just do a classical experiment like in the 19th century, yeah, you don't need any of that. You can just uh, apply the simple wave equation and get that pattern. It's when you try to look at it at a quantum level that that you uh, you need something more. I have a question also about that. So, can you tell us about the the nature of the wave in this model, the the uh, the pilot wave theory? What what is the wave? What is it made out of? Um, well, what it's is still it's, what is the it's substance? still right. The wave is still made out of ordinary light wave stuff, which is, it's, um, let's see, did I show the picture? Maybe not. I, don't, I think the picture was in the other, the other presentation. Okay. So like we're, we're, it's we're electric and magnetic fields. Okay, so, so we're, we're- They still obey the electromagnetic uh -huh. equations, Maxwell's equations. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's still the same kind of wave, but we suppose that those waves are guiding photons. So if you leave out the photons, you just have classic electrodynamics before, before quantum. It's when you want to try to explain it at a quantum level. Why do you get those, the, that pattern even when you, you're only having one photon at a time coming in? That's where you need the pilot wave theory. Otherwise you can just have the wave theory. But it's basically the same waves. Same waves are, are acting as, they're, they're normal pilot waves are are normal light waves, but the theory accounts for the fact that they're of you know how do they tie in with with the photons? So even if I'm transmitting just one photon, yeah, there's there's, there's still a wave. There's, there's, there's still always a wave there, there. Mm -hmm. because we know it has to be that way, because if there were no wave involved, then that that photon would land someplace that has no relation to wave theory 
And yet we know if we repeat that many times with a million photons, somehow it's going to end up in a wave pattern, which means somehow each, each of those photons had to know something about, about waves in order to build up that way. You can't tell from any single photon, but the probabilities of where that photon was going to land has got to be related to wave theory. Otherwise, it would never come out the way it does. And it comes out the way it does every time. It's not like, you know, you have to get lucky. It always comes out that way. And um, maybe one more question. Um, it, it, this thought just came to mind. Um, since we're talking about a, a universe that's spooky and weird and hard to hard to grasp, um, this concept of um, that has been thrown thrown around in the past of an ether, a kind of medium, uh, uh, like a non-material medium that allows waves to travel and so on and so forth. Does quantum physics um, point to any of that or or suggest any of that in any way? Um, I don't think so. I don't think the ether theory is really related to quantum physics. It's related to relativity. And uh, basically, relativ the theory of relativity is based on the idea that there is no ether. There is no fixed reference frame to measure, uh, to measure motion from. All motion is, is relative. That, so how that do you feel about this? How do you feel thing that you were discussing? Yes. Of antimatter as an absence of matter in the directs. Right. Antimatter is an absence of negative matter in the Dirac sea. That's what antimatter is, according to the theory. And as crazy as that sounds, all the experiments back up that theory. So it doesn't matter how crazy it sounds if, if it works. Okay. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you everyone for coming. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so let's uh, give a big applause for uh, Dr. Faust. And uh, here on behalf of the Los Angeles Las Vegas section, uh, we appreciate Dr. Bradley Bobs for this wonderful and fun presentation. So we have uh, a appreciation certificate for him. Great, thank you so much. That's, it's amazing, it's wonderful presentations. Thank you, thank you. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, I know we much more people online. We have more than 120 people register. Uh, I know people still hesitate to come out for in-person, but uh, it's really wonderful, especially with the discussion with, uh, at, at the end. Took a little bit more time, but it's very exciting. Uh, so stay tuned and we'll uh, welcome Dr. Bob back. He has uh, more wonderful presentation. Uh, we'll match his schedule at the right time. And also on Thursday, October 6th, we'll have the space architecture and the aerospace uh, construction, architecture, and uh, engineering event in downtown LA in uh, Walter P. Moore Company. It's an international renowned uh, architect company. They build many like SoFi uh, Stadium, many places, and we're going to have fun in space, you know, how to build uh, habitat cities on Mars, on the moon, or uh, space tourism, those kind of things. So please join us uh, in person or online. So thank you so much and uh, see you next time.
Thank you. Uh, I guess I'm not really a pilot with you, but I thought about it.